0: So the next witness is um, Scarlett Martin, and I, I will indicate that Scarlett uh, is a person that has done some volunteering at the NCI and I just bring that up because we don't want anyone um, indicating bias and so we want that you know out in the open that she has done some volunteering. What she's going to testify about today She has testified uh, in the past, which is videoed and available online before the NCI even existed, so I'm not concerned about her um, not being truthful in any way, and she's testifying about her personal experience, um, and we're confident that the, uh, the commissioners will find this to be helpful. Now, Scarlett, before we begin, can I ask you to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name?
1: Yes, it's Scarlett Martin, S C A R L E T T M A R T Y N.
0: And Scarlett, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Now, you had, and I, I'm using the past tense, but um, up till the COVID adventure, you had worked for 24 years as a paramedic. That's correct. And uh, for part of that time you worked as an advanced care paramedic which um, enables you to deal with more critical procedures than a regular paramedic. Yes. Uh, And in fact, advanced care paramedics are rare. I mean, a generous figure would be 10 percent of the paramedics. Yes. And so if there's a 911 call involving something like a cardiac arrest, something very serious, they will try and have somebody like you attend instead of a regular paramedic that's correct and you were also on a special roster for dealing things dealing with disasters in the greater toronto area so you know if a big building collapsed or something like that you were on a list to be called in
1: yes i was on a heavy urban search and rescue team
0: <clears throat> and then when covid hit um orange asked if some advanced care paramedics would be willing to join um, their critical care paramedics to do high-level transfers, including COVID patient transfers?
1: Yes, as part of their surge capacity.
0: And you volunteered for that? Yes. And then um, there was a volunteer program where frontline responders were asked to participate in what was called Core SIP, where your blood is taken on regular intervals to basically test for exposure to covid.
1: Yes, I entered that study.
0: And through that, you learned that you had natural immunity to covid. Correct. So which meant that you had caught covid and you had recovered from covid and you had antibodies to covid. Correct. Okay, and I'm going to stop leading you in a in a second. So um <clears throat> Can you tell us that you, you eventually got suspended for eight weeks and then that was extended to ten weeks and then a termination came and I want, if you can share with the commission the reasons for your termination and also the process of your termination.
1: Sure. Um, the reason for my termination was willful misconduct and for jeopardizing workplace health and safety. Um, previous to that, I had wrote a letter expressing my concerns to uh, my commander, the city manager, and the mayor, just expressing my reluctance to be vaccinated when I had concerns. Um, those concerns were met just with a very a couple sentence reply, follow the policy. And uh, I was suspended and then terminated. Just the termination was just done through the mail. Uh, my suspension was in person. And uh, the the process was quite humiliating. At one minute, you're a valued resource, volunteering and working, volunteering to step up into a role. Um, and the next minute, uh, you're being terminated, and the letter was quite vicious. I didn't understand how it was insubordination and misconduct to ask questions, and I just wanted an accommodation. I offered to do testing or w- whatever it was to to satisfy the safety needs. And this was at a time that we understood that COVID, vaccinated or unvaccinated, could carry COVID, and I expressed my concerns. Um, In that meeting, I was suspended. My ambulance keys that I had drove to the meeting with were taken. My ID, my Ministry of Health ID, um, it was taken, and I was drove back to the station by a supervisor to collect my belongings.
0: And I I just want to make sure that I understand, because... I expect that you would have shared with them that their own testing of you showed that you had natural immunity to COVID.
1: Well, it wasn't, it wasn't their testing. It was, was, paramedics were offered a lot of enter medical studies or this or that. So it wasn't their own, but yes, I had expressed that it wasn't unsafe for me to work and it wasn't protective to me with natural immunity.
0: So notwithstanding that you had natural immunity, you were terminated for not taking a vaccine for which you already were immune. Correct. Now, I'm wondering if you can share with us um, what the culture was within the healthcare system at the beginning of the pandemic. So we would be talking about early 2020 and onwards.
1: Um, At the very beginning of the pandemic and uh, I feel that I can really speak to this because paramedics don't just go to one hospital. We go to many. And then I was on a team that was going to hospitals kind of all over Southern Ontario. At the very beginning of the pandemic, when it was announced, the hospitals were empty. Nobody was going to the hospital. They were all too scared. Uh, That's how people had time to do TikTok videos and such because we weren't working. Um, I was doing call after call of sudden death, which is normal for my profession, but the stories were heart-wrenching because they were people that had chest pain or stroke-like symptoms or something serious for days, but they were too afraid to go to the hospital for treatment because of the pandemic. So they were, I, I really feel if these patients had have went for treatment, that they might be alive today. The public was so scared, they did not want to call an ambulance.
0: Right. What what was the attitude within the healthcare system, to, you know, at the beginning, so before the vaccine is out, about whether or not um, it was necessary to take the vaccine? Because we all heard it was coming.
1: Um, yeah, it was really socially acceptable at that time in my profession to say, oh, I don't think I'm going to take anything that's rushed to market. Um, because we see a lot of medication recalls that were once safe, then pulled, once safe, then pulled. So, yeah, it was completely within our culture accepted to say, "Oh, I don't think I'll take it. I don't think I need it. I'm low risk. I'm not in an age bracket."
0: Now, once the vaccine uh, was rolled out, did that culture within the healthcare system change?
1: Yes, um, it was. It, it was like a switch, and it wasn't gradual. It was just like somebody flipped a switch. And all of a sudden, people were jockeying in line to get vaccinated. It wasn't acceptable anymore to say, well, I think I'll wait. I, I don't think this is a good idea. Um, as healthcare workers, we could get it before everybody else, especially those working in the front lines. And, and people flooded to do so. It was hard to find people that were still reluctant to get vaccinated.
0: And did you observe um, any change? within the healthcare system after the vaccines were rolled out towards patients?
1: The changes I saw were so profound that <clears throat> it's disturbing to talk to about, but I think people need to understand. Um, I saw colleagues that I respected and are brilliant um, turn into bullies. I, saw, I worked up in the ICU transferring patients, and I would hear the chatter about get this one out of here i heard they were at a rally so look at them now i guess it serves them right maybe they'll die and i heard i heard these things day in and day out i heard them talk about if i went into we're in every area of the hospital right so there's you know the acute setting and all all the different settings I would know who in those 10 beds wasn't vaccinated because they would be sitting talking about it. And the care they received, the part that dis- is most disturbing is it's not tangible. When you care about somebody, the way you interact with them, the. You- put your hand on their shoulder, you move them gently, when you have hostility towards them, your chart still looks fine, you've still given them all the things you were supposed to do, but the way they were handled was different, it was rougher, it, you, could, you could feel the aggression and it was completely acceptable for them to sit around and talk about the anti-vaxxers that should just all die, I don't want anti-vaxxers getting health care. Why would the anti vaxxers come up to the ICU if the anti vaxxers don't want to take the vaccine? Maybe we shouldn't give them morphine for their broken leg if they're that. Like it just it went on and on. Um, I witnessed my own colleagues <clears throat> on 911 calls badgering elderly patients that weren't vaccinated. It had nothing to do with why we were there. Um, we're called on people's worst moments in their life. So. <laughs> We have to be mindful of that, but I've seen them standing there. Instead of treating what was needed to be treated, and not always life-threatening, they just needed something, they would say, well, what do you mean you're not vaccinated? It's been available. What would your reason be for not being vaccinated? And if we can picture a towering person in a uniform in a position of authority talking this way to an 86-year-old lady lying on her couch with her stomach hurting, badgering her. It was absolutely appalling.
0: Um, You had um, given me an example when we were talking about a call that uh, seemed to you to be a vaccine adverse reaction, where a lady had a shot and then she developed tachycardia and and chest pain. Can you tell us about that call? Because I think it speaks to uh, the change in culture.
1: Absolutely. Um, I don't know if I remember that specific one, but there's many. So, uh, in the field, our job is to report what you tell us and then ask you more questions if we need to know them, take a medical history. So, it's not our job to judge what we we really think you're telling the truth on or we just report it. When we would take these patients to the hospital, And I would talk to the triage nurse for intake, and I'd say, this patient had chest pain after the vaccination. They're quite worried that it's a reaction. They're Their tachycardic, which is high heart rate, and I'm meaning high as in 140 beats a minute, like not just a little elevated with chest pain. And the nurses would roll their eyes and huff and puff and go, oh, great, we got another one, you know, great, yeah, add that to the list. And I I can watch them because I stand behind where they're reporting. It never gets typed in. What we say never got typed in for those patients. I I never saw a single one say, following vaccination. It was just... And these patients were wrote off many times with anxiety, anxiety, Um, Sadly, as paramedics, because of the health protection laws, we don't have an ability to follow patients beyond the eMERGE. So if they get admitted up to a medicine floor, we can't call them up and go up and see them. So I don't know the the long-term outcome of these patients.
0: Now, you were telling us earlier um, that when the pandemic started, that, that it was slower. Can you Give us some more details about that.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> I've worked in a busy city, so we don't get a lot of downtime. It's rare to have a lunch break. Um, we do a lot of end-to-shift overtime. So it's, it's really, really rare for us to spend time in our stations socializing or, you know, cooking. But at the pandemic, um, that was right at the beginning. It was just like everything got shut off. We were in the stations, we were watching movies, um, we were hardly doing any calls. And sadly, when we did get called out, it was usually a person that really should have called much earlier. Um, I remember feeling embarrassed when you'd get a knock on the ambulance door and it would be a restaurant owner delivering food to the healthcare heroes. And at 7 o'clock at night in Toronto, people would come out and bang pots and pans, and um, we're not heroes, right? We signed up to do a job, and pandemics are always part of healthcare. We're, we're all trained in it, right? We have PPE.
0: Right, and you're describing to us, in, in any event, at the beginning, it was, it was slower than usual.
1: So much slower.
0: Right. Like, like
1: I was watching movies at work, series of movies.
0: And had that ever happened before? It
1: had happened once before um, with SARS. That was the only other time, and that only lasted. The call volume drop didn't last
2: long.
0: Now, I want to switch to a different topic, because my understanding is that at the beginning of the pandemic, when we're all for the first time seeing all these numbers on TV of how many cases we have, That actually these cases at the beginning were not being based on things like PCR tests um, in large part because they just weren't available yet the system was having to gear up and and uh, get tests testing kits to the hospital so can you share with us basically what these what how would they classify somebody as a COVID case at the beginning
1: yeah, at the very beginning, there wasn't the ability to do a swab, send it, have it back. There was no rapid tests readily available. So we would do a screening on a patient. It was just a sheet with 10 or 15 check boxes. And those would be the inclusion criteria for suspected COVID. So just suspected. And these things would be um, like abdominal pain, recent travel, and they changed. Almost every day, so you would have a checkbox: Have they traveled recently? Do they have vomiting, diarrhea, fever? Do they feel more tired than usual? Do they have pink eye? Many, 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 and the list kept getting longer. So it's hard to find a patient that isn't more tired than usual, doesn't have any of this long list. So they would fail. So that the fail would put them in a suspected COVID positive category. Um, one patient I had had been in a, an assault, and he had been whacked over the head with, I think, a bottle. Well, he had a headache, naturally. So we brought him in for assessment for a headache, and the nurse was filling it out. And once they screen screen positive, they have to try to find isolation. And I said, well, like, we don't need isolation for this. This guy's headache started from the hit on the head. Well, I know, but we, we don't we can't override it. There's no professional... Opinion, So they couldn't override. So you had massive amounts of patients being categorized as probable COVID patients.
0: And those patients then would also end up in COVID wards, which would be reported as full.
1: And some of them were just in and out emerge patients. And we lack the ability to really follow where they went.
0: So just so I understand so let's say somebody's at the bar and they get in a fight and they get hit in the head and they go to the hospital and say their head hurts they the nurse the screening nurse or person would have no discretion that person would be listed as as a suspected covid case
1: yeah because it's not it's not on a pen and paper anymore it's an in an input mm-hmm. into a computer and i i argued with her, not rudely but i said this is silly like this is how could we possibly... Like, he didn't have a headache before. The headache started now. He's well. He's, he has no other symptoms. No, I know, but it won't let me check. It won't... And there's no field to add in professional opinion. So they just got all filtered. I mean, it was really hard to find a patient that called an ambulance that would pass a screening.
0: So are you, are you saying that early on in the pandemic then, before they had rapid testing, that almost every single patient brought in by ambulance likely would be screened as a potential positive.
1: Oh yeah, it was a joke that maybe you could stub your toe and pass. If you only called for a stub toe, you could maybe pass the screening.
0: Now you had, um, you had a, a troubling experience where an inmate was a, admitted because of a headache. Can you share with us that story?
1: Yeah, all of these new procedures caused massive delays in patient care, and sometimes these delays cost people their life. Um, Every hospital had a slightly different procedure for screening, and I remember transferring a young gentleman, um, and he had an arterial brain bleed. So Time is never as valuable as it is when you're bleeding inside your brain from an artery, and we were rushing him to one of the neurosurge centers. His condition started to deteriorate before we arrived, so the the eMERGE had sedated him and intubated him for transport. This was a gentleman that walked into the hospital with a severe headache. Um, He passed the screening at the hospital, which that would have been before a headache was added. So these screenings changed constantly, right? They would add in. So he passed the hospital screening, and at the receiving hospital, where he was to get treatment, he didn't pass the screening anymore because he couldn't answer questions.
0: So I'm just just gonna stop you so people aren't confused. So he goes to hospital number one with the headache. He's admitted at hospital number one, they determine that he's bleeding in his brain. And, yeah. and that's a life-and-death emergency surgery situation. Yes. But that hospital doesn't do that emergency surgery, so uh, it's arranged for you guys to transport him quickly to hospital number two. Yes. But because time is so sensitive, hospital number one sedates him and, and intubates him so that the second hospital doesn't have to waste time doing that. It's an emergency.
1: Yeah, it is that. It's more, it, it's hard for us to do in the field. We can, but he was deteriorating, so it was for airway protection if he deteriorates. yeah, right. and, yeah.
0: So now he's sedated by hospital number one and can't answer questions, and he arrives at hospital number two. And tell me now again, or tell us again, what happened at hospital number two.
1: So we have his screening from hospital number one in the charts. We have the, you know, all the information we need. And they stop us because, well, he fails the screening, and they, they're not really sure what to do now because they had him as a past screening, and now he fails. And you know how things work. Nobody knows. Calls are made. Calls go up the chain, down the chain. We need another room. We need this. We need that. And the clock is running, and we're desperately trying to advocate for this patient to just go in. Let's just get the show on the road. Um, And that delay continued on for a half an hour if not 40 minutes.
0: Um, And in your experience, um, what is the likely prognosis following a delay at screening for up to 40 minutes when somebody's brain is bleeding?
1: It's a very poor prognosis. It's It's not likely survivable with any quality of life.
0: And do you think it's possible that that could have then also been classed as a COVID death?
1: We we did witness in the field um, strange things with classifications of COVID death, so it absolutely would not surprise me.
0: Can you share with us some types of things that you saw being classed as COVID deaths?
1: Um, yes. I, I'll try to keep it, uh, we were doing shift change one morning, so the night crew goes off, the day crew comes on. We take a report from the night crew, they had just come from a jumper, and we said, well, we'll help you clean things up. And it was just around the corner, it was from an eight story building, and they had told us about the call. There really wasn't any anything left to transport. Um, later that day, Um, my partner and I received a call from public health that the patient early that morning from that address had been swabbed for COVID and tested positive. And I said, well, we looked back and I said, oh, that was the the night crew that had the jumper. And I said, I don't understand how that would, what would you swab? Like you would, did you bring a spatula? I, I, this doesn't make any sense. That patient wasn't in a condition to swab, but they, they, assured me that that was a, a COVID positive case. Um, y- you certainly don't have to have medical training to understand the cause of death from jumping out an eight story building.
0: Now, switching the gears again, is after, um, after your, your experience of, of being terminated, uh, you helped form a group called the United he- Healthcare Workers of Ontario. Yes. And my understanding is, is that group has over three thousand healthcare workers as members.
1: Yes, just in Ontario.
0: J- right. So some from other. Well, I guess it is the United Healthcare Workers of Ontario. Do you have members from other provinces? No. Okay. So, um, and you guys had taken various initiatives with the provincial governments, but I'm wanting to share with us uh, an initiative that was taken by the United Healthcare Workers of Ontario concerning the federal government. You guys sent a letter to uh, the Minister of Health. Yes, we did. Can you just share with us um, what, why you guys sent that and uh, what happened in response to that?
1: We had concerns on the front lines with many, many things. One of our issues, biggest concerns, were around informed consent. And we believed that the public wasn't getting informed consent. They weren't getting informed consent about the risk of <clears throat> the COVID virus. Um, we think that there was misrepresented data. We believe that there was a lot of fear which led to people rushing out to get vaccinated and not understanding the new platform, the mRNA platform. We don't believe that anybody sat down and talked about the risk benefits. And every medical procedure given is always 100% of the time based on risk benefit. And this was just a very one-size-all approach. Um, We approached them in our letter and we had several questions, specific questions that we wanted answered. And we even petitioned them in a letter. Um, we had some of the top scientists across Canada help us form a vaccine safety risk statement. So just like with any new pharmaceutical, a, a risk statement might cause this, might cause that. We don't know about um, mutagenicity because there's nothing like that currently on the COVID vaccination. And we felt that that was important, mm-hmm. not just for health cares, but for all Canadians to understand.
0: And is it fair to say um, that you thought that such a letter and a safety risk statement written by professionals and backed by 3,000 health care providers uh, would warrant a response from the Federal Minister of Health and Ms. Tam?
1: Absolutely. And we also got signatories of other public interest groups so that we could present it. This isn't a small group of Canadians that want these answers. This isn't just health care. This is Canadians.
0: And did, did you get a response? No. And commissioners, I'll, I'll advise you that that letter will be entered as a, an exhibit and available to you for your consideration. And uh, Ms. Martin, I'll just ask the commissioners now if they have any questions for you. No questions. Uh, Scarlett, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I'd like to thank you sincerely for testifying today.
1: Thank you.
3: afternoon. Can we get your full name, please?
2: Dan Hartman, D-A-N-H-A-R-T-M-A-N.
3: And you swear that the evidence you will be giving will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God?
2: I can't hear you very well.
3: Do you swear that the evidence you'll be giving will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God? Yes. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: My son, Sean, played hockey his whole life. Uh, It was his love. It was his passion. It was his favorite thing in the world. And to continue to play hockey in 2021, he had to be vaccinated. Sean's biggest fear in the world was needles. He was terrified of them. It was his biggest fear. But he wanted to play the game he loved, so he took the vaccine. Four days after that, He went to the hospital to emergency he had brown circles around his eyes he was vomiting he had a rash and an extremely sore shoulder opposite to his injection shoulder the doctor failed to do any blood work he didn't do a d-dimer he didn't do a troponin test he gave him advil and sent him home on september 26 2021 sean went to play hockey that night And uh, everything seemed okay. He came home and went to bed. And on the morning of September 27th, Sean was found dead on the floor beside his bed. How old was he? He was 17.
3: Tell us a little bit about your son.
2: The most beautiful boy I ever met not just because he was my son, he was very polite, he was very respectable, he never back-talked me once, I never heard him swear once, he never had a drop of alcohol in his life, never had a cigarette, he was, loved watching movies, he loved music, he used to love wrestling so much when he was a little kid. He was just such a great kid, almost like an angel, that's how special he was.
3: Did he have some ideas as to what he wanted to do?
2: Well, he wanted to make the NHL, hopefully someday. But he also knew that's a long shot. So he actually considered being an NHL referee, just so he could be around the game.
3: So what happened after he passed away?
2: I had to wait uh, three long months. For autopsy results, they did a complete autopsy with genetic testing and toxicology. And, and the cause of death is unascertained. They can't tell me why he died. They have no explanation why he died.
3: And what did you do next? Seth, sorry. What did you do next after that, in that regard? What
2: did I do next?
3: Yeah. in, in so far as that. Was concerned.
2: I started a, a Twitter page to get support because I was completely lost and didn't know where to turn and uh, I've met some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life who support me and help me get through this And it's really hard though every day is so hard the hardest part for me is sleeping I, I wake up every hour I cry multiple times a day I'm a truck driver and so I'm alone with my thoughts all day, and I think about Sean so much. There, I can't listen to songs on the radio anymore. There's a whole list of songs I can't hear. And I, I'm taking antidepressants, and I'm in grief counseling now with other parents who have lost their children. I, I will never do Christmas ever again. Christmas means nothing to me now. I will never see Sean get married. I will never meet what would have been his beautiful wife. I won't have any grandkids ever. I can't live with the cause of death being unascertained because in my opinion, the vaccine killed my son. There's no other logical explanation. He was a perfectly healthy boy with no underlying conditions. And now I have to live without the most important person of my life. And every day is pure hell. Every hour, the only time I'm not in pain is when I go to sleep.
3: Tell us a little bit about the community of other parents that you have joined up with.
2: Uh, I, I speak with five other sets of parents around the world who all lost their child after this vaccine and all have cause of death un- unascertained, the same as me. And people, some people think we're lying and they don't believe us and they, they think it can't be the vaccine. Well, Dr. Ryan Cole from America has agreed to help me. He has Sean's He has Sean's tissue samples and he's one of only a handful of pathologists in this world who can prove vaccine death. And he's going to prove it for me and I can't wait to tell all the people who doubted me that I was right. My gut feeling about Sean is right. I know it is.
3: And how did you get introduced to Dr. Cole?
2: through my twitter page that that's what led me to him and i was watching so many videos of him explaining it's very strange that canadian pathologists aren't doing tests to determine vaccine death and to do that you have to stain slides and you have to look for spike protein and dr cole has even told me he's offered to give to teach our pathologists how to do it they just have to get in touch with him it's a complex procedure, but he knows how to do it. And I am quite confident that he's going to tell me that Sean died from the vaccine.
3: And um, you're awaiting his results at this, as we sit here today.
2: Sorry, what was that?
3: You're awaiting his results as we sit here today. Yes.
2: He said it won't be too long because he's already done some initial testing. I can't discuss what has been found yet, but when the time comes, I will.
3: Thank you. Are are there any questions from the uh, commissioners? Um, Just to wrap up, is there anything else you wanna tell us about your son and your situation?
2: He was the reason I woke up every morning he was the reason I went to work. I've been a truck driver for 18 years and I used to love my job. And now I hate going. I, I don't even care anymore. Sean was so special. It's, it's so hard to describe. He, he wasn't like other kids. He was a shy boy, but such a good heart. He wouldn't have hurt anybody. And he was my only son. And he was my reason, my love. And now he's gone. I believe they took him from me. I believe my son was murdered.
3: We're very sorry for your loss. Sorry? We're very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Can we get your full name, please? Irvin Student. How do you spell that?
4: I-R-V-I-N, S-T-U-D-I-N.
3: And you swear that the evidence you will give today will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God? I do. Tell us a little bit about your uh, work and educational background.
4: Thank you for having me, first of all. And uh, it's difficult to go after such powerful testimony Uh, I've been following that story very carefully. My sincere sincere condolences uh, to the family. Um, I'm Irvin Student. I chair the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids Post-Pandemic, which was created in January of 2021 to address what I think is the major catastrophe of the pandemic period amongst many catastrophes, and that's what happened to the young people, particularly in respect of education, the collapse of education across Canada in general, in particular in Ontario. I also preside the Institute for 21st Century Questions, which is a major think tank in Canada, and edit a magazine called Global Brief.
3: And before you got involved with that, what? give us some examples of the type of work you were doing.
4: I'd call myself a policy expert across a, a variety of fields, domestic and international alike. I worked for many years at the Privy Council Office, the Prime Minister's Department in Ottawa. I was on secondment in the Prime Minister's Department in Canberra, in Australia, at the start of my career. I was a professor at multiple universities: UFT, uh, York, Singapore, uh, Eastern Europe. So uh, I have a variety of hats.
3: And your educational background—just uh, what was the highest level of education that you had?
4: I have a PhD in constitutional law at Osgood Hall in. Uh, graduated in uh, 2014. Uh, I have two degrees from the UK, one from Oxford, one from the London School of Economics. I was a Rhodes Scholar, and before that, my undergraduate was at the Schulich School of Business at York University.
3: In terms of the subject matter that brings you here today, how did you get interested in that?
4: I began to see children out of school from the late summer, early fall of 2020, and it took me several months to understand what I was seeing, and then on inspection of a larger hypothesis to really be able to appreciate the extent of the catastrophe at our feet, because I'm going to quote from some 19th century writers that had a felt appreciation of this catastrophe, but this was completely foreign to our Canadian understanding. That is, in a very advanced country, that degree of collapse for children and childhoods and education is completely foreign. So I began to see them at my feet. There were three or four instances where it was very personal in my own networks. Then I began to inspect it across the country, and then we brought about 60 countries together And we discovered a phenomenon that I'll explain when I get into the guts of my testimony called what we came to call third bucket kids. That is kids who were neither in physical school, classical school, the one all of us appreciated growing up. They were not in virtual online school. They were in no school at all. I'm talking about zero school. I'm not talking about homeschooling, pod schooling, none of these fetishes. I'm talking about the Dickensians' condition of no school. And I might surprise people by saying that before the pandemic, 500 million children who were after the school closed out out of school were normal children enjoying regular schooling. After the pandemic, after the school closed, there were at least 500 million children around the world, the size of the European Union, ejected from schooling and a lot in our own country, and then I'll go into that as, as we proceed, I'm sure.
3: All right, so you've talked about the buckets. What, what is the first bucket?
4: Well, the reason I talk about buckets, colleagues, you might imagine three glasses like this. The first glass is physical school, the one that we all appreciated as common school, largely public school, but some private school, across the country until March of 2020. Physical school. Second bucket is virtual school, the one we imagined everyone pivoted to as soon as we shuttered the schools physically. The second bucket. And there's a third bucket which we didn't see, didn't appreciate, and still don't feel. And that is, I repeat, zero school. And this can happen at any age. It can happen at age seven, and it certainly happens at older ages. And this is a phenomenon I'll, I'll explain, but these children are in no education or in deep undereducation, and they never return. They have not returned when the, school, when the school's reopened or renormalized for, for, for reasons I'll explain. But the reason we talk about the buckets is because if I say no school to a Canadian mentality, to our Canadian mentality, it's lost. What do you mean no school? You must, you must be a crit- critic of the of the education system. You must be talking about homeschooling or the child is taking a break. I repeat, colleagues, fellow Canadians, fellow Ontarians, fellow humans, no school. The kids were ejected from the first bucket to the third bucket or from the second to the third bucket through all sorts of very paradoxical phenomena that I'll explain. It took us a while to study this. So when we brought the 60 countries together, we realized that this is a phenomenon that is as common in India as it is in the United States and Canada and Britain. And so we had to divine this terminology to get it through our heads. Third bucket, no school. First bucket, school. Second bucket, virtual school. But the transition to, from the first bucket to the third bucket is very, very rapid. And third bucket is misery. Third bucket is misery. Because nobody's going to want, no matter what we tell ourselves online, no matter what the delusions we recount to ourselves, no one is going to speak to a child who has a grade 7, 8, 9, 10 education five years from now when he or she is an adult, undereducated or not educated at all in a post-pandemic world that is much more fastidious, much more cruel. And we've done this to these children.
3: So tell me how did the children land up in the third bucket?
4: Yeah. Let me just quote quickly, I don't have the right glass, on Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens was, as you'll know, a famous 19th century writer who serialized books on the misery of children in Victorian England. And in Great Expectations, Pip, a miserable child, talks to Joe. He says, well... Why didn't you ever go to school, Joe, when you were as little as me? Well, Pip, said Joe, taking up the poker and settling himself to his usual occupation when he was thoughtful of slowly raking the fire between the lower bars. I'll tell you, my father, Pip, he was given to drink. And when we were overtook with drink, he hammered away at my mother, most, oh, merciful. It were almost the only hammering he did, indeed, accepting at himself, and he hammered at me with a wigger only to be equaled by the wigger with which he didn't hammer at his anvil. You're listening and understanding, Pip? Yes, Joe. Consequence, my mother and me ran away from my father several times. Then my mother, she'd go out to work, and she'd say, Joe, she'd say, now please, God, you shall have some schooling, child, and she'd she'd put me to school, but my father were that good in his heart, and he couldn't bear to be without us. So he'd come at his tempestuous crowd and make us such a roar that the doors of the houses where we was, that there, was no, not, there used to be obligated to have no more to do with us and give us to him. And then he took me to home and hammered us, which you see, Pip, said Joe, pausing in his meditative raking of the fire and looking at me, were a drawback on my learning. So what happens as soon as we shuttered the schools? In march of 2020 let me just tell you the extent to which we shuttered the schools ontario was the most catastrophic march 17 2020 to june 30th 2020 january 7th 2021 to february 10th 2021 april 19th 2021 to june 30th 2021 and the first two weeks of 2022 and in between hundreds of ad hoc bespoke school closures, mostly dictated by public health. These were general school closures that I recounted, dictated by the Premier and the Minister of Education. The longest in North America. As soon as we closed the schools, we said we're going online. But immediately you have a contingent of children and families who have no internet access and no mobile access. They're between 1 and 6 percent of the population on Statistics Canada numbers. Very well, that's your baseline ouster to the third bucket. That may grow over time as resources become more scarce. But what happens within the home when we imagine a child to be remote learning? What if you're in an abusive home, like Joe recounts? You were a star mathematics pupil, and that was your saving grace, you went to school. Now you're at home in an abusive home, and very well, you may be heroic for two weeks, but. On the periods I described that are catastrophically long, you're in the third bucket before long. And you're abused for two years in your home, while everyone imagines that you're virtual learning. Very well. You don't speak English or French. You're from a new immigrant home. Two years online, you're in the third bucket. You have a physical or intellectual learning disability, you're in the third bucket. Your family has no resources. You run out of money during the pandemic or someone's got sick. You're off to work at 13, 14 years old. You're in the third bucket. The most catastrophic category, colleagues, friends, fellow Canadians, Ontarians, is that of teenagers, middle schoolers and high schoolers who were in the second bucket for a while, that is online learning, but realized that school began to lose its Meaning, there were no walls, there were no boyfriends, no girlfriends, no sports, no spirit, no standards, nothing for which to compete, nothing physical. Everything was virtual. And I'm a teenager. The cost of exiting the second bucket and going to the catastrophic third bucket is a matter of clicking off the Zoom call, and I'm out. Nobody's aware that I'm out. Few people are taking attendance, and they're not taking attendance fastidiously, and nobody's looking for me. At the very moment when my juvenile narcissism requires you to look for me. Because you recall when you and I, when we were all in school, we knew of some kids who wanted to drop out. They'd announce it a month beforehand, I'm dropping out. And you get five people crowding that person saying, don't leave, don't leave. Then the teacher would come, the boyfriend, the girlfriend would come, the friends. You'd get a hug at the door, the family would be notified, and someone would come and bring you back most of the times. This never happened. The costs of leaving the second bucket to the third bucket were zero. And the time period in which you're in the third bucket, very, very long, especially in the teenage mind, when a month is infinitely long. Now, I wish to say clearly, and I'm going to be undiplomatic, but in my world, it's diplomatic, that if I can forgive the initial school closures because the entire world was improvising from March 30th, from March 2020, till about the spring, the northern spring, let's say even summer of 2020. We can forgive those policy mistakes, and they were policy mistakes. After that became policy crimes. Because we closed when I and colleagues already were articulating, and then shouting from the skies, and then making personal calls, and emails, and interventions, and media interventions. Do not close the schools. This third bucket is catastrophically large. I put it to you that at the nadir of the closures, it was 200,000 kids across the country on a global student population of five million. Tens of thousands across Ontario because, again, in a very degenerate way, and I repeat, I'm being diplomatic, intellectually degenerate way, we close the schools and we close them and we close them and we close them. In April of 2021, I'll never forget, the premier said that the schools will be closed indefinitely. And my stomach plummeted. Because indefinite to us is understandable, but for the teenager I describe that has a zero cost proposition to exit to the third bucket, Indefinite means forever. There is no return proposition. Premier never said, hold your horses, everyone's coming back in a couple of weeks and we wanna educate you. We said no education in Ontario.
3: There was no hope.
4: There was no hope, there was no message and nobody was aware of the scale and the catastrophe, by the way, that awaited us and that now is befalling us. Because let me just put you two, two, two signals, two key signals that any intelligent society would have understood to not go down that path of deep school closures. One, the third bucket kids will live miserably. As a rule, there will be some exceptions. They will live miserably because they're undereducated or uneducated in this world that is far more cruel and that needs, in many cases, over-preparation We've underprepared them, and then we feed them to the wolves in the society that is post-pandemic. That is our fault. That is a crime of policy. What have we done? And now, as a collective, what have we done to the country? What kind of society and country, an intelligent country, one in which I'm proud to be a citizen, which I adored my childhood, and one that I thought was the best place to inhabit as a child, I have a family of three children. What awaits is huge destabilization because these third-bucket kids will become adults five, ten years from now, and how will we live? We'll have a huge contingent of people who are uneducated, undereducated, and will hit us upside the head and will say, oh my God, what have we done? And they will in turn ask, why did you do that? And I do not accept that these are bad kids, or marginalized kids, or they're from certain minorities, not at all. I repeat, the child in Mumbai in India who could have been a physics star when the schools closed could have gone and and been married off. And that happened in huge numbers in India. But the same child here who was a a soccer star, or, or a bright light in English or mathematics, that went home to an abusive home and then lost all for whom school lost all meaning, and there are plenty of such stories, is also a third bucket child. And they will look back and say, I was on my way, and you collapsed my childhood, and then you collapsed your, your future. So I'm here to deliver the message to say, this is what happened. It happened in huge quanta. It happened in one of the most civilized countries in the world. We owe a debt to these young people to find them and bring them back to school. And I repeat, find them and bring them back to school and educate them properly. And the second is to never again for the rest of the century repeat that degenerate mistake of public policy. Never. Those are the key two to-dos, imperatives that, that, I, that I wish to impart on this distinguished inquiry. And I thank you for, for, for putting it together.
3: And thank you for coming. Let me ask you, in terms of collection of the data for this third bucket, explain to us how you go about that.
4: Well, there are two ways, and the data are completely unofficial because they're not collected, and if they were collected, it would redound to the huge embarrassment of of government, naturally. What do you mean we, we fail to educate? Ontario had no education in particular. Come to Ontario, we promise not to educate your child. The number is based on, first of all, an an indigenous, that is not aboriginal indigenous, an indigenous calculation for Canada on the number of possibly ousted children as soon as schools go online. Add to that different coefficients on abusive homes, on uh, disabilities, on houses without English or French. And then we quickly get across the global global student population of Canada, where Ontario has um, 2 million of the 5 million total student body of the country to a number of 200,000 in about January of 2021. It would have reduced as the schools began to open but I maintain it's still in the tens of thousands because our American colleagues had it in the millions. And on a 10 to one ratio, we then could triangulate. The UK had very similar numbers to us in terms of basic ouster, but their school closures were not as long. So they, they're slightly smaller than us. And in other countries without internet access, as soon as you went to the, into the second bucket, had huge numbers. I'm talking South Asia, parts of Africa, uh, parts of Latin America. But I, I wish to say, colleagues, I have first world colleagues on this commission who look at us in Canada as if we're Martian. What do you mean you have failed to educate your children during the pandemic? I say, how many kids have you got in the third bucket? They say, zero. How about you guys? Well, we have tens of thousands. How did this happen? Well, first of all, we closed the schools for catastrophically long periods. Secondly, the norm of compulsory schooling and attendance collapsed. As soon as we went online, all those norms went out the window. And by the way, they are out the window in many cases still because within the second bucket, and I wish to address that quickly as well, within the virtual schooling and uh, world, the the attendance norms were very, very variable. And the final thing is that intelligent decision makers understood that as soon as they closed the schools, there would be leakage from the school system. And you've got to plug that leakage quickly. And we didn't understand that. We were tweeting, 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 and the school closers, particularly the medical officers who were closing schools like it was going out of style, became online sensations. They were apparently saving our children, and they were saving us. And when we go back in time, when we go back and look on it, I wish for us to look at school closers as a shameful category of decision-maker. You're a school closer. You send children to misery. The schools should remain open always, 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 unless there's a foreign army at the gates. It's that central, and we now understand it's that central, not just to the well-being of the child, but to the functioning and survival of the society. There are other countries that continue to educate their children or even over-educate their children during the pandemic. Their children will meet our children in life 10 years from now. And who will do better? And who will deserve to do better? The second bucket, huge under-education for everyone else who stayed in the schooling system who didn't collapse to the third bucket. Collapse of ambition, collapse of spirit, collapse of social interaction, socialization. You could be a child of wealth or of poverty in Ontario and Canada and go to any school, and by and large, the final product is predictable. Undereducation, then you open the schools, and the undereducation continues because we open the schools with low energy. My final to-do is that within the schooling system that we've reopened, outside of the third bucket for everyone who's remained, energy, energy, energy. We must overeducate the kids for all the learning that was lost on our watch. Because again, we're preparing them for something, or we're not, or we're failing to prepare them. We're in a low energy state right now, the schools are low energy, the standards are low, we need to overcompensate so that's the first third to do and that's a leadership question at the principal level at the at the board level at the level of the minister and deputy minister go 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 that's how a smart society behaves in reaction to uh, the regress of the of the last uh, two or three years
3: you said that you and some of your colleagues were sounding the alarm tell us a little bit about that and what does it say that that wasn't front and center in media and uh, public discussion during that time period?
4: Can I be blunt? It means that the Canada that loved its children in my childhood is not such under pressure. Canada does not love its children under pressure. A captain of a ship well, my wife gave me this example during the pandemic when, to my horror, I started appreciating the scale of this catastrophe. You said, a captain, a leader, in the context of a catastrophe, puts his passengers and the young people to safety. He doesn't allow them to wallow in misery or, or allow them to feel his, his, his or her tension. We did the opposite. We immerse the children in misery, in our own fears, in our anxieties. We didn't save them. And in failing to save them, we haven't secured our future. So the message is, if we really want to be a a country that loves its children, as I do, I love young people, I work with young people, not just my own children, we have to take the lessons of this period to heart for the rest of the century, if we make it that long. And we have to do right by those we've harmed in the last two or three years. So I don't accept that this this is a lost generation at all. That's Twitter speak. If we're a serious country, we say we made a mistake. The answer to a mistake in my world is, is remedy, immediate remedy. Find these kids. They're easily findable. They're on the attendance rosters across the schools and all the boards across the country. Find them, get them back to school, educate them, get them caught up, and some of them will be Nobel Prize winners. Failing which we only have ourselves to blame. Many of them will end miserably, and their misery will redound to the collective misery. So in terms of the leadership class, unfortunately, the pandemic proved that we have by and large an accidental leadership class. Canada operates at all levels across all parties, in all jurisdictions, with a transactional leadership class that presides over a system that's been built over a century and a half. A beautiful system. And when it collapsed, we didn't have the talent and the energy to resuscitate it. That leadership class is still in place. Nothing has happened. No one's resigned. No one's got to jail. There's no mea culpa I've heard, not a single speech, not a single speech by any leader across Canada say, here are the major lessons of the pandemic, including in education.
3: Have there is, heard, there is some revolutionary
4: any, work happening in Alberta, but that's a separate point.
3: Yes. Have, have you heard any acknowledgement from any public official that acknowledges the consequences that you talk about?
4: There's no, been no public articulation of this tragedy. Because renormalization was a matter of simply opening the schools. We just opened the schools, so everything's back to normal. Imagine that every child with, with his or her lunch back is, is back to school. We, they, were just, they were just watching Netflix, I guess, for two years. But remember, our childhood is a childhood is a limited period. So what you and I appreciate is two years of, of difficulty, for the child is uh, an irreversible passage of time. You're either educated in that period or you're not. And if, if your education collapses and life passes you by, you can't get caught up. That's the other thing we don't realize. So a child, uh, I'll put a very concrete example to you. Uh, we get a call from British Columbia on the commission in the earliest days. A grandmother says, I have two brilliant children. They're stuck in the basement playing video games because the parents are in a COVID panic. They don't want them to leave, everyone's gonna die. And for two years they were in the basement not being educated. And let's say, I didn't know the age of the children. Let's say the child was 13 years old and the world opens up and he or she is 15 or 16 years old, but with a 13 year old education and now scale that across the thousands, tens of thousands. How does the system react to that? It's not reacting at all. We just said the schools are open with low energy. Everybody wear a mask, be safe, be vaccinated, zombie about. Not let's go, we got a national mission to catch up. Not that. We're in defensive posture. So the child either never gets caught up, doesn't go back to school, or the misery, the general misery continues. And those stories are legion. Those stories are legion.
3: You obviously have a very high profile. You've been in government, highly educated. What was the reaction from policy makers when you were bringing this to their attention when all this was going on?
4: I'm not gonna impart educational lessons from my own story. I will impart sports stories because I was a good student, but I was a very good athlete too, notwithstanding my present composition. I was, I was a good soccer player. And I always said in elite sport, there are nice people, and then there are people you want to have on your team when the going gets tough. I think everyone understands that analogy. Right? There are nice people, when the going is generally good. Not on a rainy day. And Canada's full of them. And in leadership class, we're full of them. But too many were pretenders when the proverbial thing hit the van. And I got to understand that personally because I was speaking to many of them. I said, where's the reaction? The only responsible reaction from anyone overseeing any decision-making part of the education system or the children's welfare system or the childhood, childhoods of our our young people, the only responsible reaction would have been, oh my God, reverse this mistake, don't repeat it. Ours were the exact opposite. I got stories from top decision-makers saying, Irvin, I can't do this. I'm too busy with my own family. I gotta, I gotta help my kids. These are top decision makers. Um, Irvin, um, we have to close the schools. Full stop. We're, there's other, there are other things at play. They're more important. Symbolic, medical issues. Twitter, Twitter fame is a big one. And the third category was complete intellectual incomprehension. We just could not go there. We couldn't imagine what happens to our own children when we close the schools, when we still cannot go there. We cannot accept that this has happened or we've done this. It's foreign. That's why I say of the 60 countries or so on the commission uh, I chair, countries like India, Argentina, Jamaica, they get it. They live more at the face of life and death, even their children. But more advanced countries, UK, Canada in particular, we can't go there. What I described in, in Dickens in the discussion of, between Pip, Pip and Joe is foreign. But we've consigned many of our kids to the Dickensian condition. We've done it. These are acts of omission or commission. Repeat it, repeat it at length.
3: I have to say, the, the failure of leadership that you're describing is extremely discouraging.
4: I think that's diplomatic. I think that's diplomatic. I think we'll look back and say there were policy crimes that were committed, and that's a category that I... This is not on the criminal law. These are policy crimes because... First, they were problems of understanding, then problems of competence, and in the end, conspicuous acts that redounded to the harm of our children. And in all catastrophes, usually in wars over the centuries, you go back and say, well, what are the major lessons learned? So the conventions, the Geneva Conventions would have been born in the, in the late 19th, 20th century, responding to things like chemical weapons and, and, and civil population rights. Those are lessons learned over the catastrophe of war. Well, what's the lesson of the pandemic? The number one lesson, never close the bloody schools, ever. Never. Not for, I'm, I'm against closing them now on a snow day. Do not close them. People die as soon as you, you don't believe it. They die. We must stop looking at our children as, as little munchkins, cute munchkins with lunchboxes that we're babying and worshiping in, in their cutest years. We owe them a duty of preparation. Beyond that worship of their beauty, we owe them a duty of preparation for tomorrow. I had that. I profited from that in Canada. I'm educated in the public schools of Canada proudly. And I look back and say, how could this have happened? We destroyed something in an instant. That was a huge achievement, a huge achievement. We regularized beautiful childhoods across Canada, Canada over many decades, with many exceptions granted, but that was the regular system. And now we've regularized misery.
3: I'm going to ask the commissioners if they have any questions for you.
5: Thank you for your testimony. I have a couple of questions. Uh, I know that um, many of the school boards in Ontario have said, or at least suggested, that the reason that they've abdicated their responsibility to the students is because they were dictated to by the health orders that came down from their particularly local health officers, and then by default the Minister and Ministry of Education, and then further Doug Ford. What would you say to that?
4: Yes and no. The think my earliest, I have a trilogy of calls for resignation in, in a number of articles publicly. My first one was for the resignation of the all of the Office of Medical Health across Ontario, for the reason of the school closures. Um, there were other reasons, but that's for other testimony. But who was resisting? There were many protests. There were many attempts at public interventions. And I'm not talking about social media. I'm talking about physical protests, calling en masse, I cannot think of a single school board that heroically went against this what I call mania, this mania of closures. It was a mania in the end. It wasn't conscious wisdom or anything like conscientious wisdom. Name me one school board where there was a strong voice saying, we keep our schools open. Everyone fell into line or colluded with the mania. A mania, by the way, which was completely foreign, it was a mania. This was a period of mania that was not foreign, it's not foreign to other societies. Ours was a diff- had a different look, but it was very much a mania. So, all of them fell into line with that energy. So, the, the school boards are, you know, just as guilty of, for, of, of, of failure of leadership or duty vis a vis the children as, as are the medical officers of health, for sure. The only reason. I would say that that the school boards have a conspicuous responsibility is that they know something about the education system. Whereas all of the medical officers of health, I've spoken with many of them, I've uh, lambasted many of them, I spoke with many of them on the phone, I corresponded, were people of average intellect who were completely accidental, who knew nothing about the education systems they were closing at all, and wanted to know nothing about the consequences. Because it was complete abstraction. This was a matter of a button. We close the schools, tens of thousands of applause, Da da dot, dot, and I'm closing my schools here, and I'm closing my schools in Popeel, and I'm closing my schools in, in York. Who's next? And I'm just looking at the horror because I'm counting, first of all, the number of third buckets that result from that, the general under- education, right? and the ease with which we put kids in, in a position of conspicuous misery.
5: Thank you. My second question is about the move by school boards to go to the standardized tests that are post-COVID and use that as their standard for going forward in education. Do you have any thoughts on that?
4: I have no view on the standardized testing. I don't think it will get us anywhere one way or the other. My brief is for high energy. You imagine that Canada was here before the pandemic, across the systems in education, in business, in the social sector, national unity, internationally. And then we collapsed to here. Okay? And when we reopened, we stayed here. We're here. We imagine intellectually we're here, but the reality is we're here. The only way we can get back up here is energy, energy, energy. That's the gap. And you feel it around. People are driving more slowly, they're thinking more slowly. The news is more somber. The politicians are less energetic. And of course with the kids. The kids are less sharp, the more depressed. They're less knowledgeable by far than we were in our generation, by far. I deal with them all the time, some of the bright ones. The only way to get back is not through one standardized test, it's energy, energy, energy. Educate them to the nines for the next several years. The only small brief I've added is that we should, where possible, add an additional year of schooling because they haven't had enough time to incubate before they go to post-secondary or the work world or vocational school. So the grade 13 would have been an obvious thing, something they did in Jamaica. We could easily do that, but we don't think that way. We just open it up and it's status quo, but it's status quo at a low energy. So we're graduating low energy people to a world that requires that much more. The gap is a gap of misery. So energy, energy, energy. That's my only brief.
5: Have you uh, sent any of this information to or contacted them with your concerns, either the education minister, Lachi or the school boards independently in this province? Yes. And have you received a response from anyone?
4: In deeds, no. In deeds, no. In explicit terms, no. But implicitly, there's an appreciation. It's just the gap between the appreciation and the action is huge because it's a mammoth task. We would have to go out and find these kids, and then we'd have to educate everyone energetically. That's much more difficult than throwing 200 million, well, I don't know, 20 million to a hundred million dollars and saying that's that's our catch-up budget was very modest I don't don't remember a few hundred bucks per family for tutoring right Um, so that is the failure again in adult responsibility let me just uh, also refine a point in January of 2022 was one of the darkest professional periods of my life where I was at a protest against school closures. The schools were closed once again, January 2022. They were closed again, and we were at Queen's Park. And five people showed up. And I swear at that point, the Premier could have said, Ontario doesn't do education. We're just canceling that. And no one would have blinked. There was no resistance because we were in a manic mode completely foreign intellectual condition, psychological condition. I don't believe that the right to education is enough. We have a duty, there's an adult duty. And why do I say that? I believe in rights first and foremost, but the rights are of the child. The child has a right to education. But if you take it away, is it for the child to litigate his or her rights? Who takes away the right to educate? The adult. Well, what, what's the role of the adult? The adult has a duty. So the duty to educate is first and foremost. It's primary. And it falls on the adults. The right is for the child. Those two things live side by side, but the duty is primary because we're adults. We failed our adult duty. So we failed very well. The adult responsibility, the adult reaction, a non-pretender reaction is... Oh, my God, mistake, let's fix it. And that's the only way I think we can acceptably move on as a society that's not lying to itself. I'm for that path.
5: And my final question is about individual assessments for students. When students are declared special needs, they're given an IEP. And I'm just wondering, going back into the system now, do you see... An increasing number of children, students at whatever age group it is that will be labeled as as, uh, special needs as a consequence of the two years of education they've lost.
4: I don't have that data.
5: It's good data to look up.
4: I don't have that data. What I want to say is this. I presume on the logic that there are all sorts of conditions that would have obtained and occurred over the course of those two or three years of second bucket, third bucket, under education or no education, huge. And I imagine mental health is an important part of the inquiry, but as I said, with duty being prior to rights, education is prior to mental health. Do not give a child who has no education or under education mental health services or therapy. Give him or her an education. The mental health we can will come with an education. But a child who has no education is not looking for mental health services. Let us stop fetishizing that. He or she is looking for an education. The mental health part comes with an advanced society's services. But we're not here to poo-poo our children and say, are you feeling okay as you come back to school? Educate, educate, educate. They're resilient with an education but they're not resilient without an education. So let's get that logic right as well.
5: I agree, thank you.
3: (laughs) Are there any final thoughts that you want to leave us with?
4: I still love this country. I still love this province and I'm very grateful for having been raised here. Canada gave me a beautiful childhood and I really struggled in accepting, starting with my own children, for other children that we could have devastated beautiful childhoods with such levity. And my last two or three years with many other colleagues, have been spent fighting for what I think is the best look of Canada and a proper childhood in Canada, not wealthy, not poor, just a proper childhood that prepares you. I want to reinstate that. Canada is a beautiful place in which to be a child, in which to have a childhood, in which to move if you're from out of Canada to raise children, but that requires work. We cannot tell ourselves stories, so we have a huge burden. But I want to say that if we put that work in, and it is work, we can bring light again to the children of the country. Because right now the picture can be very dark. And it offends me. I mean, that's part of my, I'm not very sentimental, but it offended me that we could have brought such darkness to otherwise regular children so quickly. And again, to open up the darkness is work, work, work. Work on the back of of honesty.
3: That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Commissioner. Welcome back to the National Citizens' Inquiry. Our next witness is going to be Dr. Trozzi, who's joining us virtually. And Dr. Trozzi, thank you for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: I'd like to start by asking if you could state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name.
6: Sure, my full name is Mark Raymond Trozzi, M-A-R-K and T-R-O-Z-Z-I.
0: And do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help you, God? Yes, I do. Now, can you just briefly share for the commissioners your background, so I just explain your credentials and who you are?
6: Yes, certainly. So I'm Canadian-born, and uh, I've lived in Ontario my entire life. I graduated from the University of Western Ontario Medical School in 1990. I've been practicing predominantly emergency medicine since that time. I've also taught at uh, several Ontario universities. Um, I have a special interest in critical resuscitation, and I've taught various forms of critical resuscitation and trauma medicine. Um, That was my career up until the era of COVID. I was, of course, a frontline emergency doctor when COVID was launched, and... um, I continued working in the emergency departments in multiple, including one which was designated as a specific COVID site. Um, and I continued that till the end of 2020. Uh, I maintained my oaths and my ethics throughout the entire time. I have never participated in nor promoted the injections. Um, and uh, I continued to be very open and honest with my colleagues and along, as well as my patients. Um, By the end of 2020, it became very obvious that the penetration of our medical system was so profound that I would have to actually do what I did, which is I resigned all my uh, working positions, uh, forfeited my income, sold our family home, and committed myself to what I would describe as continuing to be a real doctor, like I know others have, um, and have just committed myself to um, making sure that Canadians had access to the truth and everything, doing everything I can to help what right what is wrong and return basic ethics, human rights, and the rule of law to Canada and other places around the world, which that has been failing, in my opinion, since COVID began.
0: Well, thank you. Now, my understanding is, is that um, <clears throat> you're here today to help explain to us your thoughts on the mRNA vaccines that you've spent some time analyzing the Pfizer data, and you have some thoughts on that. And I'm wondering if you can share with us your thoughts on the COVID-19, um, I'll call them vaccines, but my understanding is, is you wouldn't necessarily call them that.
6: No, I wouldn't. Uh, if I could share my screen, I've prepared a significant amount of material, and I want to go through it uh, fairly yes, quickly. Pl- please so, do. so that I can get everything in. And I'm going to start on some other issues before I lead up to putting the bulk of my time into the discussion of these injections.
0: So, if I may share my screen. It should be set up um, now so that you can share screen. There and we, can everyone see we my are screen seeing now? your screen now. Okay, great.
6: So, again, thanks for having me. Um, so I want to go a little bit into some of the uh, foundational material, because in my opinion, and I think just for the safety, because we know that truth-tellers are trolled and um, pr- persecuted in the country, so everything I'm going to say is in my opinion. However, my opinion is very well-founded. I've been studying this for two years. I've become a steering committee of a global organization. I've worked with scientists and doctors from all continents, and I've been the lead now of uh, a health and science committee of the World Council for Health. So I have done my homework. So first of all, you know the question of pandemic, um, because that's how this all started. We were told there was a pandemic. So, you know, what is a pandemic? Um, I think that all of us in our in our lay knowledge, and this is a thing where I think we're all learning to use common sense again. I think we all know that a pandemic is supposed to mean a disease that spreads far and wide and kills a lot of people. Everyone catching a cold does not qualify, for instance, as a pandemic. Now, we need to look a little bit at the organization, the World Health Organization, which is really the conduit of control that has been used uh, by really the perpetrators of the COVID crimes to impose this global agenda throughout the world, which, no surprise, we see the same agenda in almost every country. Uh, Now, back in... 2009 the WHO declared a swine flu H1N1 pandemic. One of the results of this was that there was massive pre-orders of new vaccines for swine flu across many countries with governments accepting liability for the damages of course because there was a pandemic. However when the pandemic officially ended in August of 2020 or 2010 it had caused only 18,500 deaths globally. Now, if you look at the definition, this was the definition, this is the definition of pandemic, and the WHO also recognized the real meaning of words up until 2010. And as you can see, a pandemic, for something to be a pandemic, it requires that it has um, heavy mortality uh, with orders of magnitude, more death, than a bad seasonal influenza. A bad seasonal influenza uh, involves about 250,000 deaths, so orders of magnitude, meaning generally orders of 10, would be 2.5 million. Uh, however, when they declared the end of that swine flu, quote, end quote, pandemic, uh, there was only 18,500 deaths, so by no means did it qualify as a pandemic. At that time, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe launched an investigation into the undue influence of big pharma and the WHO for falsifying a pandemic to create a lucrative vaccine market for their uh, partners in big pharma. Uh, The WHO's response to this uh, was to change its definition. They did not change my definition. I recommend people don't accept people just changing the definition of words like pandemic or vaccine, but they changed the definition and just eliminated the part where it required that it was highly fatal and took many lives. And this basically paved the way for a new lucrative power grab enterprise like the COVID-19 pandemic. In addition, we saw modeling that millions of people were set to die, and we had Neil Ferguson was the, was the main uh, author they used for these models. Uh, Neil Ferguson was used previously to do a similar sort of thing, which was to create models that weren't true One moment, just switching slides. And then that brings us to the issue of PCR in cases. Of course, millions of people were swabbed um, and told they had COVID, even though they felt fine. Now, I'm going to be very brief on this, but the PCR test or PCR (coughs) procedure involves taking a, a sample, which may have, like many things would, including some scraps off the floor, would have a bit of genetic material in it. And that genetic material is multiplied in orders of two. So when you run one cycle of a PCR, if you had one fragment, you would end up with two. And if you run a second cycle, you would end up with four. And then you would go to eight and 16 and 32 and 64, 128, et cetera. Anyone who knows what that curve looks like, every time you do another cycle, you double the sample. Um, And so it becomes actually quite ridiculous at some point. Now, the PCR was never meant as a test. The inventor of the test himself stood up quite strongly back in uh, 2020 in this regard. Um, But even if it were to be used as an augmenting device for diagnosing or suspecting a particular condition, be that, for instance, a coronavirus infection, 25 cycles is about the limit. Countries like Canada were using 40 to 45 cycles. And what that means is, for instance, one uh, one one of the African leaders uh, he took one of the swabs and swabbed a papaya, a goat, and a quail, all of which came back as having COVID. So <clears throat> when we were told that there were tons of cases and when many people were sent home to destroy their businesses while well, uh, Amazon and, the, and likes uh, did very well, uh, this was a deception in my very strong opinion. And that led to the concept of asymptomatic spreaders that that people were walking around, and though they felt completely fine, they could actually spread this deadly disease and kill you. And we were all convinced of that. But when you look at death statistics, Canada was like really the rest of the world. If you looked at total death, what you saw, that in 2020, the same amount of people were dying approximately that had always been dying. There's, there's no spike there in total deaths. Um, and yet we were told many people were dying of COVID. And I would call that the death diagnosis deception program. And what that meant was, let's say someone died of a heart attack or advanced cancer or maybe even crashed a motorcycle in some cases, and their nose was swabbed in the course of events. And 45 cycles later, oh, my goodness, they had COVID. And there again, you had someone who died with COVID. So it wasn't that we cured every other disease and that people only died of COVID, what happened was people dying from all sorts of causes were categorized as dying from COVID, and that kept the agenda going. Before we get to the injections, I want to touch on a few more things. The mask simply made no sense. First of all, the virus was much smaller than the pores in the mask, and it would be like using chicken wire to catch sand. Secondly, having a moist, essentially, Cloth matter over your face as a facial barrier for long periods and rebreathing your own air and moisture, rebreathing your own microbes, is clearly something that should be suspected as not being good for us. We know, for instance, Chris Schaefer, one of the really good Canadians who stood up early, a Max expert, did tests, and it was very easy to see that people were ending up with lower oxygen levels and higher carbon dioxide levels, meaning that gas exchange in the body was compromised. Dental disease was on the rise. In fact, the American Dental Association recognized that and made a statement of that when they first started seeing people again when people were allowed to go back to them. Of course, this is what all of us in the emergency department had, was these chronic facial rashes from wearing these facial barriers on a daily (coughs) basis for long periods. And we must keep in mind that the severe disruption of human social interaction, which I would say was an intentional thing, because our facial expressions are a big part of how we communicate. For instance, looking at these people is a lot different when you can see their facial expression. And this was especially terrible for children. And that brings us to what I would more appropriately like to call antisocial distancing and lockdowns. Lockdowns is not a medical term. Lockdowns is a prison term. And antisocial distancing and lockdowns were very destructive socially, they were destructive economically, and they were terrible immunologically, both for individuals and in terms of herd immunity. And this um, was clearly demonstrated when you look at a study in Wuhan that looked at more than 10 million people three months after they ended their brief lockdown, and what they found essentially that there was almost zero COVID disease in the 10 million or so people there were 300 people that tested as positive for COVID uh, on a nucleic acid screening program, and there was zero indication that any of their contacts uh, had been contracted the disease from them. In particular, children were at zero risk. Now, I'd love to go into this in some detail, but I'll show the heading of an article that's on my site that people can go to, but there are many physiologic reasons that uh, children had zero significant risk of serious disease or death, and in reality, they needed to encounter this infection for their own health, for the development of their own immune system, and not only for COVID, but for many things. And this is one of the reasons why we saw last year a 700 percent increase in RSV hospitalizations of children in world in the countries that were heavily injected. So when you look at the dynamics of herd immunity, which is how is it that a cold goes around and then it's gone away and not everyone caught it, uh, the key really is you want healthy people to carry on with their life. Uh, That includes children. Um, Of course, they will contract the infection. They may show no symptoms or have a very mild disease. They develop immunity. And when enough people, when enough of the healthy people are immune, uh, the people who were at risk, who you did protect, who you did kind of I wouldn't lock them up as we did to our grandparents, but um, but that you do protect, they're then safe. So really the way for children to protect Granny wasn't to stop hugging her. Their way to protect Granny was to go out, play, continue their life, have a healthy immune system, help our society develop herd immunity and then get on with things. Like you could see they clearly were able to do a move in three months after the lockdown to the end. And this is why my good friend, Dr. Paul Alexander, myself, published this back uh, in 2021, Why Children Should Be Free and Never COVID-Injected. And I'd recommend people interested in this subject to have a look at that. And you can find that on my website, drtrozzi.org. I want to skip through a few other quick things before we get to uh, the injections themselves. So suppression, one of the reasons is we were all being herded towards these injections. Um, and have a safe and effective treatment for a disease, it's really no longer a great emergency. And um, one of my friends, uh, someone I had the honor of getting to know, Dr. Zevzelenko, was one of the first people in North America to be treating it. Um, his use of hydroxychloroquine and zinc, along with the zithromycin, was by no means random. He was a smart man. He did his research, he did his homework, and you can find details on my website of why hydroxychloroquine and zinc work together to suppress the replicase enzyme that a coronavirus relies on in order to infect our cells and make us sick. Of course, as it would turn out and we would learn, uh, in terms of the antiviral part of treating COVID, ivermectin was even better. It's very safe, it's cheap and we had pre-existing laboratory evidence of its profound action against many messenger RNA category viruses, which includes coronaviruses. And the the studies were very extensive, and so much studies have been done since this time. And in addition to that, many clinicians around the world in countries uh, where the government did not impose this um, violation of uh, patients' rights and doctors' rights to do their job I've spoken with many of them, and and the the description of how well ivermectin works early in the treatment of coronavirus and how people can just start feeling better quickly, I've experienced it myself, rather than just spiraling downward until eventually they're admitted to hospital and still denied proper treatment. There were so many cases around the world. One classic one was in Uttar Pradesh, one of the regions in India, and in Uttar Pradesh, when they... Uh, liberated the use of ivermectin. The hospitals went from full to empty in about two days. As well, this was no secret, and um, we have many uh, examples of uh, government communications uh, recognizing ivermectin as a great antiviral for coronavirus infections. This one in particular, oops, sorry. This one in particular comes from uh, Major Murphy of of DARPA and... um, you can see that he is recognizing how effective, uh, in this case, hydroxychloroquine, but it was the same with ivermectin. And people that want to look deep into that can look into the work of, for instance, uh, Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, Dr. David Martin, and others. So ivermectin was really a great drug. It is a great drug. Uh, it's very safe. It's very effective. It doesn't have a patent. It's an old drug. Um, and, and I think that's um, one of the reasons uh, that uh, it, it has been suppressed. And <clears throat> that's generally been the case. And we've seen over the last three years suppression of, of good science and the um, promotion of fraudulent science. And um, particularly anything that promoted safe, effective, cheap, cheap treatment of COVID infection with multi sequential drug therapies was suppressed. Case in point, a large group of us, I was honoured to be one of the co-authors, working with Dr. Peter McCullough, published a a detailed paper on uh, early treatment of COVID in children. We did this not so much because we thought children needed it, because really they they generally don't, but we were trying to provide a path for parents to know, hey, if your kid were to get really sick, we could help, or here's a medical treatment to help. And believe it or not, though, Peter McCullough pre-COVID was the most published scientist in the history of his field, that paper was ultimately rejected uh, with no explanation. And, and meanwhile, we had such ridiculous papers, uh, as one, one paper was, was published in a, in a major journal that said that the cause of heart attacks in people who had been injected with the so-called vaccines um was because people that were against the vaccines made them afraid and that made their artery spasm so we've just seen a plethora of garbage science in what used to be considered legitimate scientific um foundations and so in the context of all this people were deceived and coerced or in my opinion forced whether to keep their homes or whether thinking they were doing the right thing into these injections which were misrepresented as safe effective vaccines. And as I will show you, all three of those words are a lie. They are not safe, they are not effective, and they are not vaccines, in my well-founded opinion. So regarding coronavirus infections, here's some important pre-knowledge that we had. There's a phenomenon called antibody-dependent enhancement. And when you look at prior study in attempts to make even actual coronavirus vaccines, not genetic injections being misrepresented, but even Efforts to make vaccines against coronaviruses, because of the coronavirus' ability to modify its spike protein and evolve at a fairly rapid pace, um, you end up with a situation where you look at many different animals were studied. And you could get to the point, uh, phase three, where you could test the animal's blood and say, oh, excellent, they have produced antibodies to the virus. But when you went to phase four and you actually exposed them to the infection, what you found was a dramatically increased uh, rate of death. In other words, the antibodies produced in response to vaccines against coronaviruses do not protect the person. They enhance the disease. And another very important thing that we knew is a basic golden rule. This is a picture of Geert Vandenbosch, PhD. um, And uh, as he pointed out at the beginning, what on earth are you doing? You never vaccinate your way out of the pandemic. And the reason this golden rule of vaccinology exists And even in the case where we didn't, in my opinion, have a true pandemic, um, but uh, even just an active infection, when you vaccinate into an active circulating infection, what you do is drive the evolution of the virus. So you create many variants, and that is exactly what we have seen. So what is a real vaccine? So let's talk about that. So a vaccine involves taking the virus or pathogen that you're trying to vaccinate against, you generally weak it or fragment it, and you inject a small amount, somewhere in the order of 100 or a few hundred particles of that into a person's uh, muscle. And then that is carried to the local lymph nodes where B cells of the immune system produce antibodies and prepare the body so in the future, Were that to present again, they could produce the antibodies in a rapid fashion. Now, that's the science of it. How well it works is a bigger question. I think there's actually a lot of debate about pre-existing actual vaccines. But what are these injections? And as I said, these are not vaccines. Now, again, just like the WHO changed their definition of pandemic, the perpetrators of the COVID crimes against humanity think they have the authority to change the definitions of things. I think that's very dishonest, especially when you're in the middle of something. So these injections, uh, you could look at them in a variety of ways, genetic experiments. If you studied them enough and looked at the background enough, I think you would call them bioweapons. We know some of the ingredients because we could read the ingredients, uh, for instance, on the um, authorization applications to the FDA, et cetera. But we've also come to learn that some of the ingredients, they didn't just tell us because they say it's a trade secret and they have a right to inject us with something that, we don't even know all of what's in it, which I personally think that is criminal. So what these injections are, are essentially two different main forms of Trojan horses. And by say Trojan horse, I mean something that can get into human cells, but deliver a payload. And in this case, the payload is artificial coronavirus genetic material. So when you look at the two different forms, of course, Pfizer and Moderna, which most people have been injected with, what you see is something like this. These are tiny little pegylated nanoparticles. So PEG means polyethylene glycol. That's those little curly tails you see all around it. And then you see that outer kind of orange membrane with its inward tail. Those are lipid particles. And then within it is a payload of a patented messenger RNA, which has been modified in a variety of ways, which make it hyperpersistent and hypertoxic, creating a hypertoxic version of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein as it was in the original man-made virus that we uh, know as SARS-CoV-2. Now, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, uh, these guys took a very slightly different approach. They also delivered a genetic payload into human cells, but they used a virus to deliver it. They used a modified monkey adenovirus, and in it they put a payload of DNA, which is very unusual because... What happens in this case is the DNA hijacks the cellular machinery, which our cells use to make our messenger RNA, uh, and makes messenger RNA, which then uses our cellular mechanisms to produce, instead of the parts of our cell that they should produce, instead to produce this hypertoxic version of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And that's that thing you see in all the pictures of uh, the the SARS virus with the, the spikes sticking out. And that's a toxin, and it's also how the virus adheres to human cells to gain entry and begin an infective process. So when you look at this, you can understand why I laid down my income, my home, and I refused to take a role in the COVID crimes against humanity and chose, as have many others, rather to fight against it. And you can see why this was the first thing I published in January 2021. This is not a vaccine. Dr. Dr.
0: Tracy, can I just um, interject for a second? So, um, you are also going to later on speak about what you called basically a cover up in Canada. And I'm just, we've yep. got a limited amount of time today, so I'm just alerting you to, okay. to focus sure. I on that.
6: Sure. Your... I prepared for 40 minutes, and we're getting pretty quick. That's okay. Why I'm speeding Good. through. How's my, how much time do I have left? Uh,
0: well, we're a little flexible, but we're showing about 15 minutes and 11 seconds. Uh, so far or left no, no, but we can go beyond that, but okay
6: i 'm yeah. pretty quick. I'll, I'm gonna ask, thanks, for, thanks for making me aware. Um, okay, so um, just give me a moment to Okay, so <clears throat> why do we know this wouldn't work? As I said, antibody dependent enhancement, attempts to vaccinate against coronaviruses result in antibodies that help the virus, not the person. And as I mentioned earlier, antibody-mediated selection, that's the process where doing something stupid like this results in the uh, injection victims uh, being a place where coronavirus variants evolve, and that's what we've seen. And those variants are particularly dangerous to the injection victims. Um, there's more reasons we knew this would be harmful. The first is that the spike protein is a poison. That's not a secret. That was well known. There's studies that go back. Just exposing a hamster to a little inhaled bit of spike protein will give them lung disease. Um, And uh, I mentioned ACE2 receptors. That's where uh, the uh, virus adheres. And when the spike protein is produced through cells throughout the body, and by the way, when I say throughout the body, I mean very much throughout the body, uh, we were deceived and told they thought it would just stay in the arm in the local lymph nodes. That's a complete lie. And the reason is that is my opinion is that pegylated nanoparticles, by design, are meant to penetrate all tissue. They've been used experimentally in the past for treatments for brain cancer and things like that to deliver uh, chemotherapeutic drugs. So they use the delivery system that penetrates everything. By everything, I mean the blood-brain barrier, I mean the placental barrier, I mean the ovarian and testicular barrier, I mean into the unborn child and even into the unborn child's brain. Um, And after the spike protein has poisoned the tissue, whether by being produced there or rather traveling there in the bloodstream and adhering to to many tissues that have a lot of ACE2 receptors, like the hearts of young people, Etc., then the immune system attacks it. So now a person's immune system spends a lot of its energy um, uh, attacking their own tissue. And that's what we see uh, when we look at autopsies uh, from around the world uh, where they're done. And by the way, in Canada, no one is doing proper autopsies, which involve immunofluorescent staining for spike protein, which reveals the harm. Now, there's so much we could go into. I've made long documentaries on this, but just quickly, there are other pathophysiologic pathways. Here's a few of them. Prion diseases, that's how these uh, uh, spike proteins can result in misfolding of proteins and, and lead to degenerative diseases similar to mad cow disease and Jacob Kruzfeld. So a strong, low neurologic deterioration. We also knew there were specific reproductive proteins that re- resembled um, uh, the spike so that the antibody that was generated against the spike could be generated against uh, reproductive tissue. And this is probably one of the reasons we see such a dramatic fall in fertility nine months after the injections are rolled out in so many abortions, although there are other reasons. Reverse transcriptase is a very serious concern. The body has capacity, and we now know from studies on human cells that this happens that some of this messenger RNA can actually be transcribed backwards into DNA and incorporated in the human uh, genome, which makes us concerned about uh, how hard it's gonna be to get this out of some people, particularly who this is a predominant factor. And then we have vaccine-induced AIDS, vaccine-induced acquired immune deficiency syndrome. This is not HIV AIDS, that's caused by the HIV virus. This is caused by these injections. So very quickly, I wanna explain this. So in response to the massive production of spike protein by the cells of the victim throughout their entire body, the immune system produces massive quantities of adaptive antibodies against it as it existed in the original virus. These, these antibodies fail to prevent COVID and rather enhance infection. They place evolutionary stress on the virus so that the variants evolve that are literally dangerous for the people. Um, and they cause this quasi autoimmune attack that I described. But... This mass production of bad antibodies and the quasi-autoimmune disease diverts so much energy of the immune system from being available to do other things that it's supposed to do, and that weakens the immune system for fighting all kinds of infections and cancer. In particular, certain T cells called CD4 cells, their levels plummet post-injection. And these are essential to preventing and fighting cancer, and that's why we see the massive rise in cancer. That's why we see people who may have been 10 years in remission suddenly come back with cancer, and it's uh, severe and very hard to fight, and people are often dead quite quickly. We've got a new term in this era called turbo cancers, and I've spoke with surgeons from around the world who've described some very bizarre tumors that they've never seen before, including breast tumors in young women and all sorts of things. So these misrepresented injections increase the risk of COVID disease, they enhance COVID infection, they drive the evolution of endless variants, they disrupt immune function leading to cancers and all sorts of other infections, they poison tissues with spike protein and they trigger a quasi-autoimmune disease process which causes a plethora of different death and disease presentations from heart attacks to blood clots, myocarditis in young people, abortions, infertility, organ failures, and much more. And unfortunately, even an emergency doctor looking at the science back in 2020, this was really predictable. That is why in June 2021, I published this detailed analysis of the dangers we're facing. At that point, the injections in the U.S. data had already caused or had already been associated with more death than the previous 13 years of all vaccines for all diseases, all combined and all years combined.
0: So, Dr. Trosi, if I can... Get you yeah. to move on to the, the cover-up issue because we're particularly interested in, in that.
6: Sure, sure. Okay, um, and, and we're really at that point. Pfizer's three-month mo- three clinical trial results were available at the end of February 2021, and they showed high death rate. They showed massive abort- abortions in pregnant women. Canadian COVID Care Alliance did a great job analyzing this. So all officials in this country, especially people running medical regulators, health boards, They had a responsibility to know that. And you would think like 1976 that they would have when 12 people died of heart attacks in the US and that 76 swine flu vaccine was immediately halted. The US data shows 45,000 deaths so far and we know it's much higher than that. And yet we're still being told safe and effective vaccines. And there's that various data showing just a massive spike, like more death from these vaccines, multiples more death with, than with all vaccines for all diseases for 30 years. And you see the same in other countries. Canada is no exception. Here's Germany. As soon as they roll out the injection, deaths okay. double yeah. two to three times and retain like that. So what about Canada and its organized cover-up? So there's elements to this organized government. One of them is defining people as, quote, unvaccinated until two weeks after their second shot. So think about that. Uh, We know that uh, COVID infection spikes in the first week after injection. We know that uh, one of the high times for for bad vaccine adverse events is very shortly following injections, although people continue to get sick and die well past a year based on German uh, autopsies. Um, So when someone goes into a hospital in Canada and they were said, oh, uh, you know, what's your vaccine status? If they said, yeah, I had my second shot 10 days ago, they were marked off as unvaccinated and that skewed the statistics. Something else that was shocking was, yes, in Canada, in theory, we have an adverse event reporting system for vaccines, but it's been completely suppressed. And and on that note, I bring you to the example of really one of the finest physicians in our country, Dr. Patrick Phillips, who just stayed on the job and did everything right, everything right, including when people came in a few days after uh, one of these injections, he attempted to file an adverse event report. What happened? His reports were rejected universally, Patients were sometimes called by the public health officer and told, no, you didn't have an adverse event. That doctor was wrong. And the College of Physicians Surgeons, who are deeply embedded in this crime, they launched uh, an investigation for every single time that Dr. Phillips reported an adverse event. So you can imagine the result of that and other things is that ethical doctors have been excluded can, from healthcare care in can, Canada. Can I just... And the doctors
0: are... Can, yes? Dr. Yes, Dr. Josie, sure. can, I, can I just slow you down? Because you're, you're really hitting some sure. important things. So. I just want to make sure that everyone understands. So your first point is, so somebody could get their first shot. And how much time typically between a first and second shot? Would Several months. Okay, so somebody could get their first shot, and you're telling us that, that there's a window after, after a shot where they could get COVID, but that's, mm-hmm. not, that's, not, that's going to be counted as unvaccinated until a full 14 days after their second shot.
6: Yes, that's my understanding.
0: Okay, and then we actually had Dr. Phillips attend at the Truro hearings and share with what mm-hmm. you're seeing. It's just interesting that he's a maritime doctor and you are familiar with him as an Ontario doctor. Did that story kind of resonate widely among medical circles?
6: Uh, yes, and, and, you know, one of the things that people need to understand about Dr. Phillips is, is Dr. Phillips was very scientifically astute as well as ethically astute, and... Um, so doctors around the country who are on the ball uh, were, were following his work and were learning from him. So, you know, him being the, uh, the main sort of whipping boy for the colleges, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, is, is a very perverse thing. He's actually an excellent doctor, and, and a lot of us admire him. And he's admired around the world, too.
0: But it, it served as an example to other doctors that they would be punished if they submitted adverse reaction reports. Yes. No, isn't it? And so, so no
6: one reports it who's still in the system. Anyone who who has too much ethical backbone to go along with that is no longer in the system. They've been suspended, license revoked, investigated. There's lots of us. Like there's, you know, there's got to be a thousand plus across the country. Um, It's not a normal situation.
0: And but isn't it the law that doctors are supposed to submit adverse reaction reports concerning vaccines?
6: Yes. Yes. This is this. This is the, the, the crimes involved in what's going on are extensive, and the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario and elsewhere places are, are guilty of multiple crimes, and not the least is of of violating even, even their own rules.
0: Okay, and I, I'm sorry for interrupting. I'll let you continue. It's just those were such valuable oh, no, points it. you were making. I just wanted to emphasize them.
6: Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Um, so. So there, there you have a little bit about why nobody reports adverse events and, and Canada can generate some, you know, statistics that there haven't been much deaths associated with these injections. Now, Alberta, you know, really became famous for this one. Um, this, you know, province, of course, keeps statistics of death. People die. That's part of, of life. Um, and in 2021, the number one cause of death in Alberta, according to to uh, the ministry, which I, I can't blame on anyone particularly in, in the current administration of the government, but was ill-defined and unknown cause. Now, if you look in the books of Alberta, that popped up as a as a new, strange, minor cause of death in, twenty, I believe, 2019. So suddenly, the number one cause of death in Alberta is, uh, we don't know, uh, and that's when the injections are rolled out. Um, I mean, this got attention of comedians around the world as well. And... Um, I came to realize that we were living in the age of the sudden invented syndrome syndrome, where anything but the shots is the cause of death and and can I just
0: ask i yeah did you say yes, that that what is you know became the leading cause of death in alberta alberta didn't didn't even have that classification until twenty yes. nineteen
6: yeah twenty nineteen it showed up as 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 the cause of death of a few hundred um and then By 2021, new leading cause of death is mystery disease.
0: So the leading cause of death in 2021, it was a new category basically invented in 2019. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Still
6: to find an unknown. That's
0: quite interesting.
6: Yeah. So I'm getting really near the end of of everything. So, but in addition to covering up the death and harms um, from the, the COVID injections, which at this point, I mean, it's very hard for us to calculate. How many exactly? Um, but estimates are cl- definitely, I think we're into millions dead around the world. 20 million is a pretty reasonable estimate. I don't have time to go into how that calculation and estimate was made. And um, more than 2 billion adverse events on the planet so far. Those are good guesses, calculations. But what else is interesting is covering up the fact that, as I said, you're more likely to get sick with covid <laughs> if you've had these injections. And this um, this is data from February to May of 2022. And if you look on the left, there's your case rate for people who've had none of the injections, two and a half times higher case rate for people who've had two injections, and more than three times the case rate for people who've been boosted as well. Now, again, what would the natural response to that to be should have been emergency call for the halt of these injections. Instead, Canada stopped reporting vaccination status, vaccination status along with the statistics. So when they saw this going on, they said, "No no more, no more reporting vaccination status. We'll just report the cases." Now, that is that is extremely perverse because what that could mean is that these cases could be used to deceive more people into going and getting the injections and not realizing that you're way more likely to get sick with COVID if you've had the injections. So if I could take Uh, another minute and a half. I'd just like to make a few somewhat closing statements.
0: Yeah, please, go ahead.
6: So mistakes were not made. This was all by design. And I refer you that question that, as you should. I refer you to a few things. First of all, uh, revelations that come from thousands of pages, pages of Pfizer's submission to the FDA for emergency use authorization. Um, and though they were approved in 108 days, Pfizer uh, stood against a FOIA request and did not want to release those uh, in total for 75 years. Now, luckily, um, that didn't happen. And there's an excellent organization called Daily Clout, spelled daily and then C-L-O-U-T dot I-O. And there's thousands of volunteers analyzing this mountain of documents which are very deceptive uh, but do reveal a lot of what I'm saying. Also, people should look at the work of the global intellectual property expert and researcher, Dr. David Martin, and he's exposed nearly, for instance, 100 patents on SARS-CoV-2 products that were produced over more than a decade prior to the launch of the COVID agenda, as well as revelations by James O'Keefe, Project Veritas, Karen Kingstone's um, and others regarding communication and contracts within the DOD, the NIH, Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, EcoHealth, World Economic Forum, uh, the notorious WHO Director Tedros. And interesting, you'll find that two, of two Canadian names that come up an awful lot are Justin Trudeau and Christy Freeland. So for that, again, I refer you to those other sources. Last thing I want to mention is an eminent crisis we face right now. Um, the World Health Organization functions as a conduit. Uh, for WF Bill Gates uh, Pharma and the details of how that works that people are welcome to come to my site and spend some time on it. Um, but the WHO functions to manipulate and harm us on their behalf and I cannot emphasize enough the need to defund, exit, investigate, and prosecute the WHO. They currently have two fast developing programs which will super enhance their economic and political power. These are the International Health Regulations Amendment and the Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. So if anyone thinks the last three years have been awful, that's what they did with the sort of preparation I showed, like redefining pandemic. But if they pass these amendments, then they, they put themselves in a position uh, to do far worse to us. So that's everything I have to present today. I'm grateful for the opportunity, and I'm completely open to
0: questions. Great. I'll ask the commissioners if they have any questions, and they do have questions.
7: Thank you very much, Dr. Trozzi, for your excellent presentation. Uh, There's a lot of information there, but I'm, I would like to ask you, in your best estimate, you've done a lot of research, in your best estimate, how many doctors and scientists in canada would uh, be in agreement with what you're proposing to ban
3: these vaccines moving forward
6: well when I, when i when i think of uh, my colleagues in medicine in canada i can divide them into a few groups so um, <laughs> I think, I think a lot of doctors were brainwashed. And people have to remember, you know, even smart sheep are sheep. Uh, there are quite a few of us who did our own study, and you're probably familiar and have probably heard from quite a few of them, and who made it an active role to stand against this and to make the sacrifices against them. You have doctors that quietly tried to work under the radar um, and eventually left, uh, left their work. You have thousands who left their hospitals when they were eventually mandated to take the injections. So I am certain that there are, that there are thousands of doctors that would agree with me. Um, unfortunately, a lot of doctors in our country need to realize what's at stake. And they need to realize that protecting your career, I valued my career too. I valued my income. I valued my home. I had a good life. Um, but when you look at where this goes, when you look at the agenda and recognize what it's part of, uh, you know, Agenda 2030, et cetera, uh, everyone will lose everything in terms of freedom, human rights, and property. So uh, I think a lot of doctors who, you know, their patients, I've heard this story so often, people go to the doctor and say, hey, what do you think about the injections? And and the kind of honest ones say, well, I can't talk about it. I can't tell you. Which is, which is of course, a violation of the Hippocratic Oath, which is to use your own judgment. So the violations of the Hippocratic Oath have been massive. Knowing what doctors really think is a little bit tricky because doctors have been given the carrot and the stick. If you went along with this, you made a lot of money. There were great billing codes. These injections paid phenomenally. And if you stood against it, you uh, basically kissed your income and your old-style career goodbye. So that's the best I can give you to share insights in that. And but, I mean, for instance, the Canada COVID Care Alliance has over 600 doctor members. So, I mean, there's, there's thousands of us for sure.
7: And would, why would you say that the number of doctors and scientists that would support a ban for the vaccine, it's much larger proportionally than what we find in Canada? In other words, do we have movement outside
4: Canada that seems to be more active in that space?
6: Oh, yes. there's, there's like, For instance, there's petitions. Uh, one I'm involved in, 17,000 uh, PhDs and MDs signed out. Um, A group of us are are being invited to speak to the European Parliament. Uh, This this wave is crusting big time. But unfortunately, uh, the perpetrators are are very well embedded in government. Uh, Governments, for me, have pretty much lost the legitimacy for continuing with this because the science is very clear. You know, there's a reason, you know, Paul Alexander and others, including myself, have invited on multiple occasions, have invited these ministers of health, to sit down and have a public debate with us. They will not show up. There is no debate. There's just an agenda that they're pushing, and uh, I really think there needs to be a resume on this.
4: Thank you.
0: There's, there's some more questions, Dr. Trozzi, and then when the commissioners are done, I've, I've got a question for you too.
6: Thank you.
8: Thank you, Dr. Trozzi, for giving us your testimony today. I just have a few clarification questions on some of the information you presented. I believe uh, just one of the last few slides you showed us was some data from um, Canada Health, uh, from the Canada Health website in February of 2022, showing, I think, number of cases uh, broken out by vax status uh, with three classifications, uh, one being unvaccinated... I think the second one being two shots, and the third one being three shots. And I'm just wondering whether those yes. numbers um, were those absolute numbers of who was in who was wh- sorry cases by vac status, or were those by thousand
6: people? So those were case thousand. rates. Those were case They're rates. Case so rates. it okay. was it was the the rate of infection per number in the group. So um, so it it really did reflect the 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 relationship between your risk and the injections.
8: So it's not just the case that the um, lower number for unvaccinated is because there are a lower number of unvaccinated people. It's it's uh, averaged out by 1,000. No,
6: it, yeah, it was per 1,000. It okay. was a rate.
8: Thank you. Uh, and then the other Pleasure. question I had had to do with... Um, I've, I've heard this before uh, from others and yourself about this definition of unvaccinated people as being people who are two weeks post their second injection. And I'm just wondering where that came from.
6: That came from, um, for me, the source was checking with multiple nurses involved in triaging patients. So that became standard triaging procedure, as I understand it, when people came into hospital. So people go into hospital, they see a triage nurse, she takes some notes and fills some things. One of the things she fills out is vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And people who were less than two weeks from their second injection were, quote, unvaccinated. And and so at least in some of the d- databases counted as such.
8: So, sorry, maybe I wasn't clear enough in the way I asked the question, and I'm sure that's entirely on me. Where would this definition have come from? Like, who has come up with that's this okay. notion that that is what is unvaccinated, that it's two weeks past the, the second shot?
6: Well, that program was carried out uh, in most most Western injected nations. So um, I don't have the exact answer. I think that uh, ultimately you would find that probably came from the WHO, um, but I, I can't confirm that at this point. But that practice uh, has been reported in many countries from other scientists and doctors I've been working with. Okay, thank you. Pleasure.
0: There's further questions.
5: I have a question. I'm uh, just wondering for the parents who are outs, outside watching this or online. Just wondering if you have any uh, suggestions or counter recommendations that you could give to them for for preventing or countering the uh, mask the potential respiratory um, repercussions from masking. Maybe that didn't make sense, but my brain's not working yet. But anyway, no. uh, just uh, do you have any recommendations that would possibly help parents yes
9: Yeah. okay
6: yeah so um I'm, I'm not sure if you're asking specifically with regard to the mask so i i i think that as you can see my thoughts are that there's no significant advantage to having a um a piece of cloth burying your face all the time uh it, it makes no sense um so a i wouldn't mask my children i consider it child abuse um in terms of keeping kids healthy well if, first of all i would i would Avoid letting them be injected with any of this stuff whatsoever. It should be pulled from the market. And then, in general, uh, healthy—keeping a healthy immune system. Uh, a healthy immune system is built. And and it's funny, you know, if we had a legitimate healthcare uh, institution at the beginning of this, um, this is the sort of advice we would have got, which was which is to stay physically active, to get lots of fresh air, to get exposure to sunshine, or take vitamin D to eat a healthy diet, which involves lots of produce, organic produce, fruits, vegetables. Um, and and then in the case of children, and, and I'd really uh, love people to look at that. I, I presented that, why children should be free and never COVID-injected. And also, I've written articles and videos on the immune system and talked about what's called original antigenic sin. Um, so children need to be exposed to microbes. Uh, Uh, microbes are evolving and humans are evolving and we evolve together. And when a child interacts with their environment, sticking dirt in their mouth and, you know, kissing the other kids and all the stuff they do, um, that actually uh, allows their immune system to um, to initialize itself at the point in history where it exists and to become compatible with the existing microbes. And then following that, the immune system, as we grow, uh, can do a pretty good job of keeping up. As the microbes evolve, we evolve. So, um, removing kids from the environment, removing kids from each other, uh, doing this sort of state-mandated germophobic behavior is very dangerous. And I, and I think most of us are aware of the, you know, the old stories uh, where you know the kid whose mom bleached all the counters and wouldn't let him touch anything and washed his hands 400 times a day—that was the kid with all kinds of allergies and all kinds of sicknesses. Where the kids that rolled around in the dirt are healthy. And that's just the way. Uh, the immune system works. I mean, we live in a world swarming with microbes, uh, and we're meant to, and we need to do that in a
0: natural way. Thank you, Doctor Trossi. I, I had one uh, final question for you. Is my understanding is, is that you know the vaccination uptake now in Canada has is dropped significantly, and so uh, we wouldn't anticipate seeing adverse reactions that follow quickly from vaccination. So going forward, what do you think the prognosis is for Canada and Canadians that have been vaccinated? Or would you anticipate that they would be get, getting better or worse, or is it just unknown at this time because of the nature of the, vac- the vaccines?
6: Well, it's a good question. So there's a few caveats to that we've looked at variations in adverse event rates with different lots and different injections. And, you know, this is a, a clinical trial that we're, we're we're excluded from a lot of the knowledge. So some people, we believe, got a shot of saline. Some people didn't get injected with the stuff. We've also learned that one of the things that causes certain lots to have much higher uh, adverse events and death is uh, the quality of manufacturing. If those little pegylated uh, those little polyethylene glycol chains around the sphere, if they're very equal in size, that stabilizes the nanoparticle. It makes the nanoparticle more effective at delivering its payload, and therefore if the, the higher quality injection you get, the worse off you are. As well, these injections were delicate and hand, had to be handled properly, I mean stirring, temperature, all these things. And if you got lucky, yours wasn't handled well, and instead of getting uh, a, a full functioning, as I would i think appropriately called bioweapon injection you might have got just some sludge that had fallen apart so those are some of the the perks that can happen when you get beyond that when you look at for instance dr uh uh Arne Burkhardt, uh dr brian cole and others and are and are the few pathologists in the world doing the right thing um unfortunately for instance in dr burkhart's case uh, uh, more than a year ago, he had 15 families come to him and say, listen, we had a family member who died. They were healthy before. We think the injection killed them. But we had an autopsy done by the government, the public health autopsy, and it said there was no relationship. Now, those autopsies did not include immunofluorescence staining for spike protein. So, you know, if you don't look for something, you won't see it. Dr. Burkhart took those 15 cases as an initial case. His team analyzed their tissue, and what they found that there was clear evidence that cause of death, and 14 out of the 15 was the injections. And, and that included people that died as much as a year after the injections. Um, so for some, you look at the prion disease, that's a very slow developing thing. Now, <clears throat> the other thing, though, on people's side is, you know, the, the scientists and doctors who stood against this, while we may not have uh, the resources that we had before, you know, we're no longer running the university labs. We're, we're no longer running the hospitals for the time being. Um, but we're working very hard on developing solutions. So, for instance, um, if one goes to the FLCCC, you can look at their protocols um, and advice for detoxifying uh, from the spike protein and the injections. At the World Council for Health, we've also generated a spike protein detox guide. Now, those guides are working very well uh interestingly two of the most important things you can do one is intermittent fasting that increases the rate of what's called uh, autophagy or uh, getting rid of bad old cell debris so the sooner we can get this poison cells out of the body the better off we are um ivermectin the same drug that works for uh treating covid infections also helps to sequester this poisonous spike protein which makes it Less likely to interact with our tissue, so ivermectin also stands quite high on the list. But there's a lot of things that could be done. There's more that as is being looked into. Uh, I've been talking with uh, an excellent doctor Goodnow using uh, a nutrient called plasmalogens, um, and I know others are working on this. So I would recommend uh, people, if you've had the injection, uh, to think about getting one of those protocols rather than waiting until you have a problem. The other thing we're working on, uh, we have it now available in a couple of countries in Europe, but we will try to get it available elsewhere which is a simple test, for instance, a urine test, where you can test your urine and see uh, if you're producing spike protein and see how much of that spike protein you're, you're producing. So the, the doctors who stood against this were still in the game, and so how how bad it's going to be is partly going to uh, depend on how successful we are and how much people take advantage of that. And, um, and as well, the sooner that we see the system uh, turned into something legitimate again and we see, for instance, rather than uh, agenda uh, promoters running the College of Physicians and Surgeons in, in my opinion, a very criminal fashion. I'd like to see someone like Patrick Phillips or Dr. Killian or Dr. Luchki or any of the doctors who stood up into the right thing. These are the ones who should be running our healthcare, care. And then we'll do a very good job um, of treating the uh, injuries from these injections.
0: Thank you. I think those are all the questions we have for you, Dr. Trossi, on behalf of the National Citizens' Inquiry we thank you. We're very grateful for you taking the time and sharing your insights with us.
6: Well, Thank you very much for doing this. I feel that this is the first sign of legitimate government in a long time in Canada, is the people coming together for the people. So I, I'm really grateful that you're doing this to all of you, and, uh, and I hope it continues to go well. We'll continue to support it.
0: Thank you. Our next witness today is Vincent Gerseys. And Vincent, uh, I'd like to start if, by having you state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name. Vincent Gercees, G-I-R-C-Y-S, And, Mr. Garcia, do you promise to tell the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today? I do. Thank you. Now, could you explain for the commissioners, uh, basically, the experience you have as a police officer? Certainly.
9: I am a retired member, a former member of the Ontario Provincial Police. I started my career with that organization in 1982, and I served this province in policing for a total of 32 years. I, um, I have 32 years of experience in policing and that's different than some people who have one year of experience repeated 32 times. I have submitted my curriculum vitae here, I believe it's with the um, group and it's five pages long of courses that I've take, taken over the entirety of my career. I started my career in Toronto and eventually I became a member of the emergency response team for the OPP, one of many, and um, at some point I became involved in forensic investigations and forensic reconstruction. I did that for a number of years Um, and throughout the course of my career um, there were uh, a number of things that I had taken on. I never turned down any opportunities for training. And I received a number of commendations throughout the course of my um, 32 year career and retired with the police exemplary service medal for my conduct. I just want to say that um, there are many men and women in law enforcement uh, and the, the, the men and women of law enforcement are ordinary men and ordinary women just doing extraordinary things. And I'm extremely proud and happy to know that the men and women that I worked with within the service were what I believe to be the best of the best within policing services. And I've met many, many wonderful police uh, officers over the course of my career that put themselves in harm way and behaved very courageously. So I'm very proud of the profession, but I see that a number of mistakes have been made over the last three years. Tremendous mistakes have been made. So I'm going to start off with a little bit more of an introduction into my background, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to tell my story, and then I'm going to get into the mistakes that were made.
0: Thank you. Please proceed.
9: Whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, this is the first sentence, in the Canadian Charter of Rights that was written and established in 1982, the same year that I started my career in policing. I was very familiar with the Canadian Charter of Rights, and I was issued upon my um, probationary period, when I first started with the organization, a Bible. I was issued a King James Bible, and The question needs to be asked, why? Why was I issued a Bible? And that is something that I carried with me during my service. And every time I testified, and I have testified hundreds of times, actually thousands of times, in various courts, I became an expert witness in forensic reconstruction. And every time I testified, I did it by placing my hand on the Bible to swear an oath. I'm very familiar with the police oath that I've taken, and it is the same oath that all police officers in the province of Ontario take. The oath varies from province to province depending on the police services involved, but in Ontario, it's the same oath. And my oath is to the Constitution in Ontario. I'm very familiar with it, and I would hope that other police officers would be familiar with the oaths that they had taken. It's very important, the um, the um, first opening sentence of the Canadian Charter
0: of Rights. And, and I know uh, you mean uh, Section 1 or the part you just read, which it, is often omitted? The nominated. part that I
9: just read, because right. it is the foundational component. And that foundational component, people need to understand that our Constitution and our charter is not a federal law, it is not a provincial law, it is national, it is agreed upon by the entire nation of this country and it is our primary law, it is the most important law of the land. So my story started at the beginning of the pandemic when I was present when a restaurant in Toronto serving brisket barbecue known as Adamson's Barbecue had been shuttered and shut down by 200 police officers and a team of horses that have come in to push back people and prevented that restaurant from staying open. I had already been following the science. I am very familiar and done my research regarding mask issues, regarding transmissibility uh, and other issues, and I just could not comprehend the what I was seeing with the amount of police deployment at that location. I since became very active in speaking out against these types of measures that were taken against Canadians. Things continued to ramp up and get worse very, very quickly, as you well know. So I I won't bother to get into those details, but I will say that uh, over the last three years, um, I had two arrest warrants issued for me because I was in a park outdoors speaking to a group of people on two different occasions about the importance of our our Constitution and the Canadian Charter of Rights and how they were being abused. These arrest warrants came just prior to and just after my attendance in Ottawa during the, the trucker freedom convoy that had arrived in Ottawa. I attended there just to see what was going on, there seemed to be quite a bit of discussion about trucks arriving in Ottawa and it sounded exciting, so I attended and when I got there I can see the level of deployment there that was taking place and I wanted to reach out and help in any way I could. So I took on various roles, one of them being a police liaison, I had received through the Ontario Provincial Police the Police Liaison Officer of the Year Award. I guess I did a pretty good job at it, and so I was also liaising with police services in Ottawa during the trucker convoy. I did not go there by truck, I don't own a truck, I don't know how to drive a truck, but I was there strictly helping, uh, acting in any helpful capacity that I could. The temperatures were very cold, things were very disorganized, so I tried to offer some form of organization there. As a result, my bank accounts were frozen and uh, I eventually left at the end when things were dismantled. I was issued a fine for attending a church service and received a $10,000 fine for doing so. $10,000? Yes. The prosecutor was asking for a $10,000 fine for my involvement in attending a church service in in elmer ontario and that was issued by the elmer police service that matter has since been resolved but that was the fine that the prosecutor was requesting i must say i'm very proud of a number of members of the ontario of the elmer police service at least six of them i'm very proud that they have made the decision to quit within a one-year period and that is approximately 50 percent of the number of officers that are employed by that police service. The amount of tyranny I saw come out of that police service towards the Church of God in that town was deplorable and in complete violation of our Constitution and the Charter. Uh, Many criminal offenses have taken place by the police against the church because it is a criminal offense to interfere with church service. That essentially is my story. And I'm going to now get into the um, other aspects. I had been asked in April of 2021 by an international organization known as Police for Freedom if I would join that organization. And I did so under the condition that I would not be silenced. I had belonged to another organization of police officers in this province. Um, and I felt that uh, I wasn't able to speak freely, so I've since moved on, and I wasn't about to be silenced in discussing what I felt was very important to discuss. So I am now the Canadian uh, representative of Police for Freedom International, and there are quite a few police officers that I am in contact with. I would say over the course of the last three years, I've been in contact with hundreds, if not a thousand or more, police officers across this province and internationally, that think uh, in the same purview that I do, we share the same conclusions, and I'm gonna go through those. Now, when I would conduct a forensic investigation, and it doesn't matter if it's a forensic investigation or just uh, an everyday investigation within policing services, there is protocol that we follow, there's procedure that we follow, and it's very, very simple. Uh, It's not rocket science. In conducting investigations, we, look at other people's perspectives other people's statements we we want to know what happened in any investigation and in order to find out the truth and the truth uh, is a hard thing to describe if you ask somebody like jordan peterson he'll probably give you a one-hour explanation of what truth is uh, basically the truth is what happened that's it in policing we want to know what happened and we need to know what happened so that we can um, decide whether criminal offenses have been committed, and by who, and how, and why. So we need to answer a lot of questions. And when we conduct an investigation, the best way to come up with the truth uh, is to acquire as many statements, and I'll call them perspectives, as many perspectives as possible. Anybody standing in front of me, looking at me, has a view of what I look like. If somebody's standing behind me and they're looking at me, they, they have a different perspective. So... Ultimately, the more perspectives you can get on anything or person or issue, uh, the better equipped you'll be to understand what is really going on. It's also about collecting information. It's about collecting um, physical evidence, documentary evidence, testimonial evidence, and then we come up with our conclusions. Ultimately, the more information that is available, the, the more accurate of a decision we could make, and a better understanding we have of what is real, what is really true, and what really happened. So it is my understanding that there's nobody here present from mainstream media. Is there anybody, if if you are, can you put up your hand? CBC, CTV, Global? No, I didn't think so. So evidence is also the absence of something. So when mainstream media is not here, That is evidence of something. Now, I've done a Google search recently, yesterday as a matter of fact, on the National Citizens' Inquiry, and I've done it through a number of browsers. And if I search the National Citizens' Inquiry, it will come up. But if you click on the News tab associated to these browsers and search over the last 90 days, nothing comes up. That's evidence of something. That's very telling. So the media not present brings me to the issue of COVID-19 uh, and other issues that are in the media that have what I would call a single perspective. Some call it a narrative. That's a, just a flowing individual path. I call it a single perspective. So on the issue of lockdowns that we faced There was only one perspective that had ever been in the media. On the issue of mask wearing, one perspective. On the solutions to this problem and the way out, one perspective. Vaccine acceptance, one perspective. Vaccine hesitancy, one perspective. Vaccine safety, one perspective. Vaccine efficacy, one perspective. Vaccine injury, no perspective, no comment, no discussion. Vaccine death, no perspective, no comment. Died suddenly, no perspective, no discussion. So we see a lot of contradictions. There is certainly available data, a data that I was able to find And if I'm able to find it, I think just about anybody's able to find it. And it's not about what people knew. It's about what people should have known. And uh, I've I've seen this uh, numerous times in the Ontario Provincial Police when it came to um, officers, disciplinary measures of uh, somebody should have done something, somebody didn't do something. And it really comes down to uh, if you didn't know, you should have known. It would have been your responsibility to know and in this case, in the medical profession, in the healthcare profession, it's incumbent upon those individuals within the profession to do their research and to know and to look at other perspectives because they are available and they were available to probably just about everybody here in this room. Those perspectives were very readily available. The information that was coming out was very readily available if you just chose to look. And, of course, there's a there's a much higher threshold and level of responsibility that comes with your position within the health services. The term that was used as safe and effective probably should have been um, used at own risk, would have been more accurate to describe this product that had come out. This product with no known long-term data, uh, not knowing what the content within the product is, yet being pushed as safe and effective. My own personal physician was trying to shove safe and effective down my throat when I spoke with him. Uh, Certainly he was not aware of the information that I was aware of, but unfortunately he was not interested in being aware of that information. The one thing that we did agree upon was that our trust in healthcare services in this province was paramount it was very important that we trust healthcare services and that there was nothing worse than forcing a jab in someone's arm to lose that trust. So I had, I had mentioned that, um, that I'm a representative of Police for Freedom, which is this international organization and consists of many police officers in Canada as well. I can tell you that uh, we have incredible concern about the unfolding of these incidents. I fully concur with the comments made by Dr. Trozzi in his last um, testimony that he had just given. We are very much aware of the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the CDC, working in conjunction with many other similar type organizations. And it appears that uh, uh, publicists and McKinsey Are companies that are advertising PR firms and consulting firms that seem to be integrated with those organizations? The Brighton Collaboration is often mentioned in healthcare services in Canada as as a reference to the Brighton Collaboration, but the Brighton Group has I, I believe is no longer exists and is now formed and known as the Task Force on Global Health. Task Force on Global Health seems to be uh, working in conjunction with and reporting to and having discussions with CEPI, the Consortium of Epidemic Preparedness Initiative. Uh, People listening to this um, testimony I'm giving might want to look up those organizations and see who they are, see how they are actually comprised of the pharmaceutical industry, the World Bank, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, so on and so forth. Some names that keep coming up. And, you know, there's uh, a very um, incestuous relationship that ties those organizations to the government of Canada with certain members specifically that have already been mentioned. Uh, The World Economic Forum Canadian leadership members is of concern. We know that Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, had made a comment that we have penetrated over half of the cabinet. And he said that rather uh, casually, and he seemed quite happy about that. The comment had come up once in parliament, uh, asking the question relative to this connection. uh, And immediately there seemed to be what appeared to be a comment uh, or an excuse to some microphone related problem. That question has never since come up by any party in Canada. It is very concerning because it appears that there are members possibly in other political parties as well relative to the World Economic Forum and those things that go on in the World Economic Forum. I'm not going to comment specifically on what things go on, but I will say that criminal conspiracies do happen. You are not a, you are not a nut for calling something a criminal conspiracies. I've investigated criminal conspiracies and they're real, and they really happen. Organized crime is not some old Italian guy in a wife beater shirt uh, talking about the mafia or somebody in a leather jacket riding a motorcycle. Organized crime now is very sophisticated And generally, those people that are very, very wealthy with incredible power and access are positioned very well to be very effective criminally. Is there any evidence to suspect reasonable suspicion of the need to investigate potential criminal conspiracy? Yes, we believe that there is, absolutely. So I'll say that, uh, you know what what gives me grounds to say that, well, just relative to the vaccination rollout only, I'll say that there was the promotion of safe and effective with no known long-term data. The contents were unknown. There's also injury and mortality rate, uh, injury and mortality rate data that was available early on in this that uh, either you should have known, you could have known, you should have known, and if you're in the healthcare system, the onus would have been on you. At some point, the death and injury rate became unusually high. And, and that flag should have been aware, uh, everybody in the healthcare system should have been aware of it, whether they say they were or not. There appears to be cognitive dissonance on that issue. People are sticking their head in the ground like ostriches and not wanting to know. But unfortunately, the, the data can't be hidden, the, the truth is there. Then there's the continuous use of the rollout of the vaccine when the available data is still known. Health agencies fail to notify the public. Infant mortality is increasing. Uh, Fertility rates are dropping. Menstrual cycles were affected. The media remains silent and the media and the government relationship appears very suspicious. During the uh, Emergency Measures Act hearing that took place several months ago, the, uh, the, the, um, the Emergency Measures Act uh, hearing in Ottawa. Um, Superintendent Pat Morris of the Ontario Provincial Police, who is in charge of intelligence for the province of Ontario, made a very, very interesting comment, one that I found uh, resonates well with me, because I had made the same comment as well. He said, I know what the government is saying. I see what the government is saying. Essentially, these were his words, roughly. Uh, I know what the government was saying, and I know what the media was saying, but the intel that was coming back to me, this would be coming back to him from various sources on the ground, whether it's people reporting or interacting with other police agencies, or whatever his format of intel was. He said, "My, my real intel was inconsistent with what they're saying. So they know what they're seeing, they know what they're hearing uh, by their sources, which is inconsistent with what the media is saying and with what the government is saying. We see that type of inconsistency over and over. So I do have a suit that has been launched uh, with a number of other individuals against the Attorney General of Canada and the Minister of Public Safety regarding my rights violations for having my accounts frozen in Ottawa and I had, I had indicated in my testimony there as well that when I was in Ottawa, I spent a lot of time walking the perimeter of what was going on and conversing among my colleagues there about what they're seeing and what's happening. And there were no concerns, no concerns of violence or these types of issues. But in the evening when I would go back to my hotel room every night, and turn on the TV and look at the CBC to see what their reporting was, I indicated that I was seeing an inversion of reality on television. And they didn't seem to understand what I meant by that. And I said, I said, what I'm seeing on television is is completely opposite of what I'm actually seeing there. The news is lying. They're being deceptive.
0: So... um Vincent, can we get you to describe what you were watching on television and what you were seeing, just so that it's crystal clear for everyone listening to you what, what, exactly what you're telling us?
9: Right. So, what I'm seeing are a bunch of happy people, uh, very happy. It's a very positive vibe, a very positive environment. Everybody was happy hugging. I mean, I've hugged more people than you can hug at a Greek or Italian wedding. There's no doubt about the level of joy that people were displaying and having, I saw no violence and I saw nothing to be concerned about other than it was just a great time overall. Uh, But what I'm hearing on the news, the reporting was that there were acts of violence that were taking place, there was arson that was taking place, there was assaults and Nazis that, you know, we were labeled, uh, the people there were being labeled as Nazis and this type of thing. Um, All of that reporting from the CBC was just completely false, it was just completely wrong. And so, it didn't surprise me because I was already familiar with that type of reporting from the CBC and our mainstream media. And essentially, you know, I find the media is a propaganda machine. Uh, They have been uh, paid very handsomely by a number of organizations, including the Canadian government. They are spewing propaganda, but even worse, they are suppressing information that people should really know. So it's, a, it's, a, 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 it's a, a joint issue of propaganda being distributed and censorship of the information that you should know, uh, information being withheld. So a number of lies that I found that, that have been exposed in media over the last three years that are of most concern is that COVID-19 threat assessment the COVID-19 was uh, super, super dangerous and super scary, and you should all be locked up. Uh, that whole threat assessment and that whole narrative is a complete lie. That the mRNA gene therapy, uh, the safety level of that was a lie. That lockdown measures and the efficacy uh, of the vaccine and the lockdown measures as well, separate categories there, uh, was, it was just a, a lie, not required. Uh, and that there were no available therapeutics, as the media had stated, that was a lie as well. So in order to keep the lie going, I, I think it's, it's important, it's critical to all those involved in what had taken place, both in the medical profession and in government. Uh, in order to keep that lie going, uh, it, it's an indication of a t- totalitarian regime by definition. Clearly we see if you can control the healthcare If you're interested in firearms confiscation and you move in that direction, you censor people and control the media. You control the education and enable indoctrination. You control the currency with intended CBDCs. That's the central bank digital currency, controllable currency that appears, is on the horizon. And if you control movement, 15-minute cities, that would be an ideal system for a totalitarian regime. We know that the... Um, the initial lockdowns and the fear-driven mandates have resulted in initially a police state, and then it continued on to what we are becoming as a corporate fascistic governance. There's no question, when the media works in collusion with the government and corporations, when they're all working together, that clearly is fascism at its best. And it appears that that is what is happening. Now, I have what I would call a way out, and by no means am I suggesting that this is the answer, but it's the best I can think of. And this would be in consultation with a number of other police officers in agreement. That establishing a national COVID-19 forensic task force that is completely independent of government interference vetted by a judicial body with arrest warrant and search warrant authorization would be a good start. And I'll summarize what I find are the failings in the police community. They fail to adhere to established plans. In policing, we have a plan for everything. Our command staff is very well organized and they plan for all worst case scenarios. And the OPP, it's a common mantra to say, plan for the worst, hope for the best. We say that all the time and we believe in that. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. And you can bet that there were pandemic plans in place already. Imagine spending a lot of time, money and resources on planning for a pandemic, planning when things are calm, when heads are level, when you're not afraid, when you can liaise comfortably with the health agencies, you can liaise with all kinds of other agencies to come up with what you would say is the best plan you can possibly come up with. And then when a pandemic is introduced, let's throw that in the garbage and let's just wing it while we're afraid and while we're scared, let's just uh, forget about that plan we have. No, we put that plan in place for a reason. It was the best thought out plan and it was a very rational plan. Now, I'm not familiar with what the plan is, but I do know that there are other people who are going to be testifying here as to the content and detail surrounding that. The police failed to understand information. They accepted a single-sided narrative where additional counter-narrative information was available. How do I know it was available? Because I provided counter-information And I did so by helping other people across the country that had uh, compiled a number of reports that appeared to be very concise and detailed with information. Uh, A number of people across this country were distributing hundreds if not thousands of copies of actual information to police agencies, to health agencies, to government agencies, and they were documenting their service upon those agencies. And the police agencies failed to respond they fail to understand their oath. They fail to understand Section 52 of the Constitution and the ramifications. Section 52.1 of the Constitution essentially says any law that is created that is inconsistent with the Constitution, which includes the Charter, has no
0: authority whatsoever. Vincent, if I can help you out with that, I think the probably the exact quote is Section 52 sub 1. The Constitution of Canada is the supreme law of Canada, and any law that is inconsistent with the Constitution is to the extent of the inconsistency of no force or effect. Correct.
9: The police service, essentially, over this three-year period, became the Praetorian Guard, following political pressure and interference. Let me make it very clear that our system in the way it's supposed to work, I will try to describe it for you. If you can imagine a horizontal line, a membrane, if you will. And on the top of that membrane, up above, is politics, the political sphere within this country. And below this membrane is civil service. And there is a membrane that separates the two. Civil service includes police services like the Ontario Provincial Police, the RCMP and all other police services. And I would say that those services are pretty high up near the membrane. They're they're pretty high up in priority and importance. And it's important that that membrane stay in existence because we can't mix politics with policing agencies. We need to have independence of the two so that we don't have corruption. But it appears that over the years, that that membrane seems to have torn and disappeared. There doesn't seem to be any service, any dedicated agency in this country to be actively involved in looking into allegations of crime. There's nowhere to go. There's there's nowhere seemingly to report these problems.
0: Vincent, can I just interject for a second just because you're in contact with so many police officers are you aware of any police investigations concerning potential crimes uh, in this COVID saga that have been allowed to proceed because I understand people have made complaints to the police alleging crimes But uh, my understanding is that most of them are stopped by management. Are you aware of of any that have been allowed to proceed?
9: No, I'm not aware of
0: anything being investigated. Uh, Not that I should be. It
9: wouldn't be in my purview. But I know that many people have provided information. And the least that that you should be aware of is some kind of a response. Some kind of a response uh, notifying that we have that information. We're looking into it. And usually the, the police services would get back to you and say, we might need some more information. Can you help us, you know, guide us, direct us, give us some more? Nothing. No contact. I'm not aware of any of it. So it, it's imperative, that, it's imperative that, we, that we do the right thing. I'm going to say, do not fear doing what you know to be right. Fear the consequences of the fruits of failing to do the right thing, and that concludes my testimony. Unless somebody has some questions,
0: I'll ask the commissioners if they have any questions.
10: Good afternoon, Mr. Gersey thank you for your service to our country, and for coming here and testifying today. I have a few questions, probably more related to policing, because uh, of course you had 32 years of experience as a police officer. Yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, we had Mr. Tom Morazzo here testifying with regard to the trucker's convoy. And he described and showed video of a incident in front of the war memorial where police officers pulled aside an injured uh, veteran, took him to the ground, kicked him multiple times. He showed the video, it's in evidence here. And one of the questions I asked Mr. Morazzo was, was there any security camera footage? Because the only footage that we saw was from participants, amateur people with phones filming it. But in our nation's capital, in front of the parliament buildings on Wellington Street, between. Where uh the you know, where the um, where the war memorial is, I asked were there not security camera footage that could have been referred to? Because I hadn't seen any of it. And what his response to me was that he believed the cameras were shut off. Do you have any information about the security camera footage?
9: No, I do not. And uh you know, when it comes to security cameras, I, I have a rather sensitive spot to that, understanding the level of surveillance mechanisms that we already have in place in this country. And I certainly wouldn't be asking for more surveillance equipment. Uh, To answer your question, I'm not familiar with that, and to the point on that, um, we have seen a lot of police violence and brutality in the final phases uh, when police moved in very heavy-handed in Ottawa, and there's no doubt in my mind that the tactical officers, the emergency response team officers that were responding were not only ill-informed, they were provided, I, I believe they were provided, false and misleading intelligence. And I say that because I, I watch the behavior of those officers. And uh, you know, police officers are not generally stupid people, and I'm not suggesting they're stupid, but they're put into a situation where they believe they can be harmed, they believe they need their weapons out, they believe that there is a serious threat against them. And I have to ask, where did they get that information? Because all of the intel that I was aware of, and I got to know, uh, I can't say I knew everybody in Ottawa, there were hundreds of thousands of people there, but all of my observations, continuously being inconsistent with what the media was saying, the media operating in collusion with our government, um, there's no question that there was false or misleading intelligence that was provided to those, those officers that were shutting things down at the end. And that's also consistent with uh, the evidence of the commissioner of the OPP and the superintendent, Pat Morris. There, those two um, individuals from the OPP giving testimony seemed inconsistent. Because the commissioner is saying he believed, uh, and, I, and I'm not going to repeat his exact words, but essentially he believed that there was perceived violence, and the superintendent of intelligence is saying he had no concerns. So where did the concerns come from? And and I don't believe we've ever gotten an explanation. The, the closest I came, I, I came to getting an explanation was I believe that... Um, During a debrief, one of the Ottawa police officers had said at some point during a debrief uh, shortly after things had shut down that information came from something he saw on the CBC.
10: Well, that's an interesting response because um, unlike the horses that were used in Ottawa which have blinders on so they can't see where the police officer is directing them, the police didn't have blinders on, and I refer you to your earlier testimony where you said that you saw with your own eyes by walking through the crowd that it was peaceful, that there was, I think you said there was more hugs than an Italian wedding, and I've been to a few of those. How is it that you were able to visualize and see the reality on the ground, and these officers, despite being briefed? But being present and having their own eyes open could not see what you saw.
9: Well, the best explanation I have for that is that I was walking those grounds for over three weeks. I was there for quite a long time, and the, uh, the atmosphere and the mood had never changed until the end when the police came in to shut things down. Then I did see violence, and the violence came on the part of the police officers. And it is possible... And uh, it is a realistic possibility that, you know, because of the uniform difference, it appears that the frontline officers that were working at the function on a regular basis were pulled offline at those last, uh, those last two or three days, and that uh, a whole new contingent of officers coming from other parts of the country in the, in the province were brought in, kept to the rear, and then marched out, And they never had the opportunity to see what was going on at the event, but they were primed with various forms of intel that gave them the mindset that we're dealing with a lot of very uh, crazy, violent people. And, um, you know, I don't know what intel they were provided with, but they were certainly provided with some intel, I believe, that would have uh, given them the mindset that they, they were dealing with a dangerous issue.
10: So you're suggesting that they were just following orders?
9: Yes, that's right. Absolutely. I and the- and, and I, need to, I need to finish with one final point, that these police officers, I've said at the beginning, they are ordinary men. They are ordinary men. In Germany, in 1942, there was a police battalion, PB-101, And stories and books have been written about them. And it is called, and they are referred to as the ordinary men. It's ordinary men that can be provided with false information and misleading information that can develop a very violent mindset against a group of people. And extreme extreme horrific atrocities can occur and can be brought on as example of police battalion 101 from ordinary men we all have that ability within us to do that if we're provided with extreme fear and false intelligence and the greatest concern that i had over the last three years was how far is this going to go What are these individuals, what are these police officers going to be provided with? Which kind of information? How misleading is this going to go? How how are we, the people who are concerned, pushing back and protesting, how are we going to be treated if the lies continue? Knowing that the police officers are ordinary men. And there's nothing in training that I've ever experienced to identify that problem and make police officers aware of what they could become.
10: I would um, like to know what is required in normal times for a police uh, for the police to initiate an investigation, a criminal investigation.
9: That's a great question. I can tell you that as a police officer, I cannot initiate an investigation without permission of my command staff when I was working. So, you know, there are things you can do in policing. If you're given an area to police, you police it. You're given certain criteria of what the organization wants police, then you police it. But for the most part, when it comes into something more extensive, you do need authorization from your organization, from your, your command staff.
10: And. Yeah. And I think you said earlier that to your knowledge, and of course you wouldn't have detailed knowledge of what's going on behind closed doors, but to your knowledge, the police have not instigated a criminal investigation concerning any issue under the, um, uh, with regard to the pandemic uh, mandates and treatments. And
9: uh, Again, I'm not aware of that. I haven't been provided with any information to believe that that would be the case. Uh,
10: just one question. Um, another question is... Um, you talked about the WEF. I personally had a meeting some time ago with a MP, Member of Parliament, Canadian Member of Parliament, who said to me, the WEF is no different than the Lions Club. Do you believe that the WEF is no different than the Lions Club? No, sir.
9: I believe that the WEF is an extremely powerful, influential well-equipped, well-financed organization of the wealthiest, most elite people on this planet, working together with a number of other organizations and corporations. They are extremely well-organized and well-structured and well-positioned.
10: You know, my last thing is I'm sitting here and I've been listening to testimony for the last three days here, and I was in Truro prior to this and listening to testimony, and it shocks me to the core to hear people like yourself and other people making certain comparisons or analogies to what's going on in Canada, which include the Schutstapel, which is the SS, and other things in Germany. We've heard that as a common theme that people compare what's been going on in our country to that era, and it shocks me to death. I, I don't know if you have any other comment on that.
9: My parents came from Eastern Europe they lost their country. If they would have stayed, they would have been executed. They spent a year living in the forest in Western Germany, fleeing from the Bolsheviks and fleeing from the Nazis. I understand what fascism and totalitarianism is.
0: Thank you, sir. Mr. Mr. Gurses, we are going to... Um I'm sorry, we have one more question. Thank you for
5: your testimony. I remember, and I may be remembering wrong, but I do remember in 1982 when the Constitution was enacted, or the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that all levels of government had three years at that time to bring their laws into alignment with the Charter. If we fast forward to where we are in terms of the Church of God, for example, in Aylmer. Or the church in Kitchener, who also suffered huge fines and losses. how? And then they went into court and had to deal with it at the court level. Do you have any idea how we can convince the judges that, that, um, that were responsible for those decisions, that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms still stands as under the supremacy of God and rule of law in this country, as the supreme law? So the decisions that go against the freedom of religion, for example, in this case, will... Um, Not take away from the churches, but actually show how much churches in a community enhance that community going forward?
9: Well, I think the only way to make a change uh, at the judges' level is the judges are utilizing jurisprudence to make their decisions. That is, they are saying the pandemic was extremely dangerous and we were all gonna die. And you didn't do your part because we knew we were all gonna die, and you just weren't doing your part. And so there are limits to the Constitution, and we don't think this was unreasonable. I refer to that, and so do many others, as the great lie. And that great lie needs to be exposed and broken before we can see a change.
11: Yes. I guess,
5: I guess the, mind, the irony in that mindset of the judges is that we're still all here and we're still all alive. Thank you.
0: So, Mr. Gerses, we will enter uh, your CV as an exhibit with your permission? Yes. Thank you. And on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we sincerely thank you for your testimony today. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Commissioners, we have a few more uh, quick lay witnesses, but I'd suggest we take a five-minute break. So we'll stand down for five minutes and recommence at 20 to 6. Welcome back to the National Citizens' Inquiry as we go on our final leg on the third day of our Toronto hearings. It, <clears throat> I'd just like to announce one of our commissioners had to go and catch a plane Uh, But our rules permit us to proceed with three, and she's committed to watching the last three witnesses. So uh, that explains why we have an empty seat. And our next witness is going to be Maureen Summers.
7: Good afternoon. Could you spell and state your name for the record, please?
11: Maureen Summers, S-O-M-E-R-S. Do you promise to tell the truth today? Yes, I do. I understand that you're a
7: descendant of Holocaust survivors. Can you tell us about some discussions
11: you've had with family members? Well, for starters, I never imagined in my lifetime that I would be witness to a fascist dictate on the nation. And from what I have learned in history and from relatives who not only survived the Hungarian occupation by the Nazis, they also survived the occupation by the Russians. And from everything that I have learned from them as well as from my days in my history class, I was always told by our History teacher, that if you don't study history, you'll never know what's coming. Well, never in my lifetime could I imagine that I would see a fascist dictate on our nation. And by that I mean, from what my relatives have described, fascism. The unvaccinated and the elderly in this country were treated terribly. That's fascism. The unvaccinated, particularly, have been treated horribly. They were pitted against the vaccinated. That's fascism. I understand
7: your concern for your grandchildren. Can you tell us about uh, their concerns and how they
11: experienced the pandemic? I'm a grandmother of uh, to eight grandchildren, and to hear one of my grandchildren in utter terror that their parents could die from a virus that he might bring home or they might bring home, and the absolute terror that if their parents died, the question to me was, Grandma, who will take care of me? And as a grandma, I reassured my grandchild, not to be afraid. However, my fear, my biggest fear, not COVID, nothing else that has happened. My greatest fear is that I may outlive a few of my grandchildren that were unfortunately vaccinated.
7: I understand your husband was taken to the uh, emergency room for excruciating abdominal pain during the pandemic. Can you tell us about his experience?
11: Back in October of 2022, my husband arrived by ambulance to the emergency ward of our local hospital in excruciating pain. He was left in the ER hallway on a cold gurney, and the attending doctor, the ER doctor at that time, her The priority was whether he was vaccinated or not. When he was questioned by the doctor, what is your vaccination status? And my husband replied he was not vaccinated. Then the interrogation started. That was the doctor's priority. Why aren't you vaccinated? My husband's response was, I don't want the vaccination. Why don't you want the vaccination? I told you, I don't want the vaccination. My husband's in pain. And that was the doctor's priority. And her comment and reply to his insistence that he did not want the vaccine, particularly not right then and there, she said to my husband, Mr. So-and-so, if you don't take this vaccination right now, you're going to be dead in two years. My husband said at that time, my wife is on her way. She is a power, She is my power of attorney. You can speak to her. Well, upon my arrival, that doctor couldn't be found anywhere in the ER department, even though I requested to speak with her twice through the nurse, the attending nurse. We were abandoned by that doctor. She never returned. The attending nurse who was looking after my husband, told him he would have to wait until the ER shift change, and there would be a new doctor who would attend to him. We waited an hour and a half for this new doctor to show up. Luckily, this doctor couldn't care less about his vaccine status, ordered tests immediately, and determined that my husband needed emergency appendix surgery, ASAP.
7: Thank you. I don't have any further questions for you. Perhaps the commissioners
11: do. Oh, I'm happy to report my husband is healthy and alive.
7: Thank you very much for your testimony today. Thank you very much. Next witness, I believe, is Diane Spaulding. Could you state and spell your name for the record, please?
12: Yeah, it's Diane Spaulding. D-I-A-N-N-E S-P-A-U-L-D-I-N-G.
7: Do you promise to tell the truth today? I do. I understand that you suffered a vaccine injury. Uh, can you tell us what those injuries were?
12: So I received the Astrazeneca vaccine on April twenty third, twenty twenty one. Um, the next three days, um, I had um, just some fatigue, bone pain, um, and a fever. Um, but on the fifth day, i um I had a bleed on my lower arm, and where the injection was, uh, it was um, had a lot of swelling and redness and uh, and a rash. Um, uh, after that, I started getting pins and needles in my hands and in my feet, and they were going up my arms and up my legs. I started getting um, blurry vision. Um, I was sitting on the couch, Uh, this was around the fifth day after the vaccine, and I had this earthquake feeling in my head. That's the best I can describe it, it just felt like an earthquake in my head. Um, And that, that, that quickly followed by this intense dizziness and disassociation feeling. Um, The best I can describe that is a drugged feeling. I just, my head just felt drugged. Like, I wasn't, I was there, but I I wasn't there, kind of thing. Like, disassociation. Um, I started getting internal vibrations in my chest. Um, Light and noise sensitivity. Um, I had to constantly um, turn down the volume of everything and close the blinds in the house. I couldn't take any light um, or noise. Um, I um, I started um, I started getting very fatigued. I actually spent two months in bed. I could not get out of bed. I'd go to bed and wake up and think, "Oh my gosh, I haven't slept." And I just, I just so I just stayed in bed. Um, I started getting bruising all over my body, head to toe. Bruising um, and petechy, which which are little um, little small blood dots.
7: We have some photos, so skin. we'll walk you through the photos. Just one moment.
12: So that was that was my arm,
7: and that was the yeah. injection site. Correct. That's correct. Okay.
12: That was the bleed um, on, my, on my lower arm where the injection was.
7: So this was the, was the same arm the as same. the injection arm? That's correct. Okay. These were the spots that you tried to describe a moment earlier? Right, the Sorry. Is this some bruising? Yes. <laughs> And this looks like it's a, is it your arm or your leg? Um, It looks like my leg. Okay.
12: That was my chest.
7: Another bruise on your chest?
12: They were everywhere.
7: Again, your arm. And uh, this is obviously a finger. What happened to your finger?
12: Um, My fingers just started peeling.
7: Was there pain that went with this bruising and
12: peeling? Um, No, not really. No, I mean, I would just wake up in the morning and look, look at my body, and it would just be full of bruising.
7: Again, some bruising, and it looks like there's a raw patch there. Can you describe that for us?
12: Yeah, probably like, like an eczema or something, like, yeah.
7: Did you ever have bruising or eczema like this before the injections?
12: Not the bruising, but I did. Um, I, all my life I've had asthma and, and um, allergies, so I have witnessed eczema before, So, but definitely not the bruising. Um, yeah, I don't know what that was, <laughs> a rash.
7: Okay, thank you. Now, you have an unusual story with respect to your hospital visits. So let's start with the first visit. So what was the diagnosis?
12: So the first visit was when I had the bleed on my lower arm. And, um, of course, I had heard on the news about the AstraZeneca cases causing VIT, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia. So I was, I was quite concerned about that. Um, thinking that I may have that. So I did, I went to the ER. Um, and the first thing they said is, wow, you've had quite the response to, to the vaccine. Um, you know, like, that's a good thing. Um, and and that was about it for that first visit.
7: At what point were
12: you diagnosed with uh, anxiety? So that would have been my third visit. Um. Once I, oh, I had more symptoms after after that. I, I ended up having a hand tremor, a leg tremor, and a head tremor. And these head tremors were like Parkinson's. I couldn't control the tremors in my head. Um. So yeah, so that's when I went back to the hospital again. That was the third visit, I believe. Um, they diagnosed me with anxiety, and they referred me to a um, they referred me for a psych consult. Um, that ultimately led me to see a psychiatrist and place me on antidepressants.
7: The psychiatrist also referred you elsewhere. So um, what kind of paperwork did she provide you with, and what kind of referrals did she make for you?
12: So she wrote me a letter of exemption against the second vaccine and um, to be able to use the amenities at our condo, such as the pool and the gym, because she felt that would be um, good, for, good for me to do that. Um, I had a referral to a neurologist, a hematologist, a rheumatologist. Um, and the rheumatologist basically just asked me why I'm there. He didn't understand why I was sent there. The hematologist was, a, was actually a phone call. It wasn't an in-person visit. Um, and he asked me, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just clumsy. Um, the neurologist actually, um, he acknowledged my vaccine injury. He actually said, I have seen some cases come through that are presenting with an essential tremor, and that's what you have um
7: so you saw all those specialists in summer 2021 correct that's correct okay and ultimately um, you submitted an adverse event form yes i did did
12: you receive any responses to that i was told to i was told to go and get the second vaccine
7: Despite the exemption that you received from the psychiatrist, was it?
12: That's correct. The Toronto Public Health told me to, suggested that I get the second vaccine.
7: Now, what happened in January 2023? And this is what makes your story quite different.
12: You received a call from Mount Sinai Hospital. I did. I um, So I had... I had, um, I complained to the human resources at Mount Sinai Hospital for the treatment that I had received for the anxiety diagnosis that ultimately put me on antidepressants and I had to wean myself off of them. Um, so yeah, they, um, they actually called me, that was in the fall. So I, I actually got a call in January from them with an apology um, saying, you know, we've, We apologize for the way that you were um, treated and the way we handled the situation, Um, you know, given the anxiety diagnosis.
7: And I understand they also told you that they had a board meeting about you, is that right? That's
12: what, yeah, that's what he he, he said that,
7: yeah. Did you get a sense of whether there were uh, many cases discussed or he just mentioned that you were part of this or you were discussed in this board meeting?
12: Yeah, no, he didn't, he didn't mention anything about other people, just, just
7: me. Despite the uh, apology, were you successful in getting uh, helpful conventional care?
12: Not from them. I lost my family physician over this, because when she received the report from the hospital saying I had anxiety, she yelled at me. And said, "Diane, you have anxiety," and she hung up. Um, so I lost my family physician over that. Um, the only—I mean—I went home and I basically, um, you know, went online and researched for myself. I found a face. I found a, a lot of Facebook support groups with a lot, of thousands and thousands, just like me. With the same similar symptoms, and that's where I found the FLCCC, and I found a local doctor here in Toronto that um, prescribed me Ivermetin. Um and that's when I finally, I finally, I finally turned a corner. I was able to get out of bed. My tr- my tremors went away. My internal vibrations went away. Um, yeah, so. That was about the only successful care that I that I received.
7: I understand the bruising and the bleeding remains a problem, right?
12: That's correct. Yeah, the bruising, um, the um, blood dots. Um, it they come. They seem to. Um, they seem to come out after a busy day. Like if I'm act, if I'm if I'm being active at all, and the um, disassociation in my head, the fogginess, um, the brain fog. Um, it, It just never went away, it's still there.
7: Thank you, we'll see if the commissioners have any questions for you.
12: Um, I would just like to end my testimony with a quote. (laughs) Um, Dr. Zelenko, um, he said that um, he wanted the epitome of truthful messaging, that he wanted the truth like a mantra propagated. And that's, that's why I'm here today, you know, to be seen, to be heard, to be believed. Um, you know, the gaslighting, it has to stop, you know, it's, it's been really difficult. So, thank you.
7: Thank you on behalf of the uh, National Citizens' Inquiry. you turn your video on, please, Jen? Thank you. Could you state and spell your name for the record, please?
13: It's Jan Francie, and spell my last name,
7: F-R-A-N-C-E-Y. And spell your first name, please. Oh, Jan, J-A-N. I know it seems simple. Do you promise to tell the truth today? Yes, I do. I understand that uh, you were also vaccine injured, but let's start with why you were reluctant to receive the vaccination in the first place. Yeah, when I was
13: uh, 18 months old, I was hospitalized with severe encephalitis and uh, they didn't have a cause for it. They said it must have been mosquitoes. This was January in Canada. And um, I mean, it was severe enough that my prognosis was very bad. And that was if I lived. Um, and so I've avoided, you know, I've gotten my, my uh, tetanus shots, but I haven't gotten things like flu shots because I just don't want to mess with those things. So I
7: didn't want to get that because of that. Okay, and ultimately what made you change your mind?
13: Uh, the vaccine passport. Winter was coming. I live in a shoebox. Um, the thought of another, an entire winter sitting inside was I was afraid I wouldn't make it through the winter
7: I live alone when you say you live in a I don't have bo- any family here sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you I didn't hear what you said
13: the, the apartment is very small it's one room it, there's no balcony it's maybe 200 square feet
7: so what happened after the first injection?
13: After the first one, I woke up and I didn't feel well. I felt nauseous. I was throwing up. I kept throwing up. But I also had um, like a, a sensation in my hands that wasn't right. It was like they were vibrating, but they were also kind of numb. But there's also pins and needles. And that just continued. And the throwing up continued, and then it came time to get the second one, which I had to get because I still wasn't a person in Ontario. After the second one, everything got really bad. When I woke up the day after the second one, uh oh.
7: We can still see you. Okay. Can you? When I woke up the day. After okay, go ahead.
13: When I woke up the day after the second one, all my joints were stiff. Everything hurt. The numbness and the vibration had gotten worse. And then over the course of a couple of weeks, the vibration would continue all night. But they were everywhere. Like I could feel it in my gut. Everything was vibrating. I could not sleep. I felt like I was moving all the time. And then, uh, yeah, things just kept worsening. By I had developed Raynaud's, um, but I also couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't detect heat. I could pull things out of the oven without an oven mitt. And you don't think about it because you don't feel any heat. You just, you've done it already when you realize you've done it. Um, I couldn't feel my feet or my face either. That went on for months. I couldn't feel the shower. <laughs> and then uh, as time went on, I started getting a lot of symptoms in my head. Uh, my, my eyes, my vision went bad, my hearing, I couldn't tolerate anything, I couldn't tolerate light, I couldn't tolerate sound, I couldn't tolerate vibration, people talking. That was just way too much. I couldn't handle people talking. Um, and then my neck started to get stiff, and I started to feel like my sinuses were being pushed down. Like I just, just felt like my head was going to explode. The pain was so brutal.
7: What happened when you tried to get help at the hospital?
13: I went to the hospital in June last year, or July, July 4th. And um, I was plastered in hives and giant lumps from a we don't even know what I reacted to. And I had tried telephone appointments, which is what I usually relied on. And I'd gotten RuPaul and that didn't do anything. And so we tried to go to the hospital, but um, well, I'm mask exempt due to PTSD. And it was a trauma from a violent crime. And uh, so I get in there and I have to deal with the security guard who's not too bad, but he's pretty persistent. He wants to put something on my head. And then I get into triage and I have to show him my letter from a mask exemption. And then my partner who's with me has to show him proof of vaccination. And then we finally get through there and get sent to a next waiting room when a nurse decides that she's going to attack. And I was humiliated in front of the entire waiting room She would not stop, and I ended up leaving. Like, my partner wanted me to stay because I was an absolute mess. The the hives and the lumps were everywhere. I was on fire. But it's just too much. How am I going to trust somebody who just screamed at me and humiliated me? Where's the care in that? So,
7: ultimately, you did have an appointment with an immunologist, and what happened at that stage?
13: That was after the, uh, the hives,
7: which I ended up on prednisone for through a telephone
13: appointment. And uh, so they had set me up with them to figure out what was going on. So I started explaining what was happening to him, And I said, and I get these, when it happens, like I get this vibration in my neck. And he didn't think that it had anything to do with that. And he didn't know why, what I reacted to or what was going on. And he suggested that I needed to see a rheumatologist and a neurologist.
7: Were any of them able to help you?
13: I didn't get, this was a telephone appointment with the immunologist. And nothing ever happened after that. I don't know how you get yourself a telephone appointment. This appointment with the, I mean with a specialist. This appointment with the immunologist was set up by one of the other telephone doctors.
7: But did the immunologist not refer you to both a rheumatologist and a neurologist?
13: I never got a call, no,
7: nothing. Okay, so you never received a follow-up, but that was his recommendation, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, How did this interfere with your ability to work? I was not working
13: when it happened, so it didn't interfere.
7: Okay. Have, are you able but to... Um, I couldn't work. There is no way that I could
13: work now. I can't even stand up for 10 minutes without my heart. I have cardiac problems as well now. And, you know, I take a walk, my heart goes up to 140. So
7: it's not a good feeling. Did you have any success with the adverse event reporting system? Well,
13: I got my first telephone appointment because I had my last shot November 11th, 2021. And then in December, I called for an appointment. I had to wait till the 15th of January. And that doctor was terrified. As soon as I mentioned the vaccine, she started to stutter. And I said, I don't, I want to be exempted from more of this. I can't take any more of this because I was scared because they kept talking about more and more boosters. And I didn't want to not be a person, but I don't want to die either. So I asked her for an exemption and she said, no, 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 no exemptions. College said, well, then I asked about reporting my injuries and she said there's no point in doing that because they just throw them away. And she was right because I tried to self-report. Fast forward my eight months and Toronto Public Health just basically turned it into nothing. Sent the first doctor I talked to on the phone a letter saying, you know, she, you can decide if she's having another shot. <laughs> And they also said that they don't write exemptions. So then I wrote to the College of Physicians and basically demanded one and asked them who they thought they were and they never heard back from them.
7: Thank you. I'll see if the commissioners have any questions for you. No questions. Thank you so much for your testimony on behalf of the National Citizens' Inquiry.
0: So that concludes the witnesses for today, and so we will adjourn the National Citizens Inquiry and reconvene in Winnipeg.
8: Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.